Blog Talk Radio. And hello out there to all you Metzian folk. This is a Metzian podcast with Sam Rich and Mike. I am the converted Mets fan, Sam Maxwell. And uh, before I bring on uh, uh, my my fellow podcast members, uh, I just I got to say that you know the three of us came from Rising Apple. Basically, the format is what that we're about to do is what we did on uh, the rising out report for so long. And that's been passed on to uh, JT Tehran and Christina Cola, who, and it's definitely in good hands over there. And uh, it's, it, it's pretty astounding that uh, we, you know, we've moved on, but it's, it's certainly bittersweet. And uh, without further ado, I'm going to bring on first Rich Spirago. Uh, and usually here I would say uprising Apple, but Rich, we're, uh, we're an independent uh, broadcasting company right now. Other than Block Talk Radio, of course. We are. It's sort of like when Fox first started. You know, they they were the new fledgling network and we're the new <laughs> fledgling podcast. But but hopefully we'll have a uh, you know like a Simpson show that'll propel us to to uh, you know to major major networkdom if that's a term. I, I like the sound of that, and I'm I'm certain that uh, with the friends we've made, we'll be able to have something along the lines of the Simpsons uh, the Simpsons along the way. Uh, and uh, also the the Simpsons of Brooklyn, and that is the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger, uh, Michael Collant. How you do? How, how was that introduction? <laughs> that was awesome, guys. We're getting the band back together. This is great. <laughs> yes, it is. It is uh, fantastic. And uh, for our first featured guest, I couldn't ask for a better featured guest than the Mets fan incarnate himself, Faith and Fear in Flushing's Greg Prince. Greg, welcome to the first Metsian podcast. Welcome and welcome back to our lives as Mets fans. Glad to have you guys on the air again. And quite honored to be uh, guest number one. And and so, guys, you know, we basically can cover whatever we want, you know. Uh, I, I, right now, why don't we start with the, the newest news, uh, and that is that the, the official signing of Jay Bruce and Greg, I'm I'm going to start with you because I know you have a fascinating angle about uh, Bruce's back. Um, I have a fascinating angle. <laughs> I uh, I'm I'm trying to think what is fascinating about bringing back the same guy who was here, uh, except for like two months before. Um, I, I guess the uh, the interesting part about Jay Bruce, aside from what he can produce uh, as the right fielder, uh, possibly a little first base, although that doesn't seem as likely as it did last week, is that uh, he is, what, number 44 among uh, what I like to call recidivist Mets, Mets who have left us and then returned at some point after playing for another team. Um you know that's not always a uh, terrific indicator of the second time around, but you know he's an individual. So the fact that uh, oh I don't know Jim Gosger or uh, Tim Foley didn't do all that well in their second go rounds doesn't probably have a whole lot to do with Jay Bruce. But um, hey, they, they liked him. He liked them. Uh, we thought he was okay as Mets fans, I imagine, and. Uh, it seems somehow surprising that the Mets would sign anybody, seeing as how late it got into winter. But, uh, you know, the, the guy was on pace 
depending on, on how these things go, to challenge Carlos Beltran and Todd Hundley for most home runs in a single season by a Met batter uh, before he left. So we we know he can hit in City Field. Uh, we you know everybody is singing his praises as a uh, clubhouse leader and mentor and all that stuff. We know Conforto loved him. So uh, you know, Act Two, bring it on, Jay. I feel like it's almost like Act Three at this point, just because it felt like he was a goner. <laughs> but you're right, it is Act Two technically. And Rich, you know, like you and me, uh, I'm, you know, like me, I mean, uh, you also felt that. At first, uh, Jay Bruce didn't seem as if he was a fit, and then, you know, last year we, we seemed to all love him, uh, or at least like like uh, Greg said, generally it might have gone, you know, somewhere middle of the pack, he was okay, uh, of the general Mets aura. But, you know, what, what's your feelings about now bringing him back? Oh, I'm, I'm completely fine with it. Um, yeah, and I'll be the first one to admit, I was thinking about the podcast we did on New Year's Eve of, of- 2016, so December 31st, 2016, and I was going on record as saying that he's another, uh, I didn't really want to call him Ed Whitson, but somebody who just could not cut it in New York. He was a, you know, Midwest kind of a guy, laid back kind of a guy. It wasn't a good fit, you know, rehome him to a place where he'll be comfortable, all of that. And then the, you know, the curtain went up on 2017, and he was a new man. I know he was the player he was in Cincinnati plus some. Um, he was a very likable player. He had that, you know, that, I don't know, that intensity that was great on the field with a slight goofiness, you know, and we all remember his, his um, way of, you know, conforting himself after uh, they won the wild card in Philadelphia. So he just became a lovable Met, and it was sad to see him go. But bringing him back, I think, is great for all the reasons Greg mentioned, the clubhouse presence, the production on the field, and even the versatility, you know, uh, like Greg said, now with Adrian Gonzalez, it, he might not, uh, he, Bruce, might not be asked to play as much first base, but at least he can. So, and he's a potential cleanup hitter. So, why the hell not? You know, and he came on a pretty team friendly deal, too, so I'm happy with it. You know, I saw a photograph of, you know, the outfield configuration from last year at its finest, I guess you would say. Uh, Bruce Conforto and, uh, of course, Yolanda Cespedes. So when I saw that photo, I, I actually still got a good feeling. I mean, a lot of people say, you know, why are we going with the same exact thing that failed? But the offense was not what failed. We still need what was a much better offense, really, uh, than the year before, but with much better pitching. And, and Mike, uh, I'll let you take it away from there because, you know, I, I'm sure you can either agree with me or disagree with me. <laughs> Oh, boy. Uh, man, I hate to be the negative Nancy right off the bat like this. But, Rich, you know, mentioned it, money. He comes cheaply. I, it's not so much that it's a friendly deal. He comes cheaply. Uh, and, and to me, that's a whole nother stream of thought. Uh, and I'm also a little perturbed because this is still a poorly constructed outfield. We don't have that prototypical center fielder. And I personally don't want Conforto playing center field. Uh, I think he's better in the corners. So, and and, and Greg also nailed it uh, when he said, you know, been there, done that. Uh, I'm kind of dissatisfied that we're spinning our wheels in the mud. But, again, to me, that's a vicious cycle. Money, spinning our wheels in the mud, 
been there, done that, money, spinning our wheels in the mud, been there, done that, if you catch my drift. So I have no problem with Jay Bruce per se. I really don't. It's the bigger picture that really, you know, uh, sets me off a little bit. So Jay Bruce, him in and of himself, no problem there. Uh, It's the bigger plan that I have an issue with. And and you know what? Allow me to throw this out. Allow me to throw this out. Uh, It was about a week ago, I think, I I was watching MLB Channel. And I'm not going to say who said it because I just don't remember, so I don't want to attribute this to uh, someone incorrectly. But they said that Central Division players uh, have a problem coming east. I don't know if that's true or false. I never noticed it, not that I ever paid attention to it. But the fact of the matter is that somebody said it. And I wonder, because you saw how he performed with Cleveland. So, I, I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there for conversation's sake. So, you know, that just, you know, opens up a whole broad Wilpon can of worms in, in many ways, and which I'm completely all right going off of uh, on our inaugural podcast. So, Greg, now at this point in Sandy Alders' tenure, and now he's hired the manager – and I would even throw it out there, the manager that he's been wanting to hire this entire time just kind of got caught in the middle with Terry Collins and some some uh, uh, unexpected, crazy success uh, in the first year that they uh, narrowed down for contention. But um, how Sandy Alderson and the position he is in his career and how that plays into, you know, the where the Wilpons are in their personal careers. So... If you want to go off of that, <laughs> which, again, opens up a whole Wilpon can of worms. You know, I, I think we're all in the position of trying to play amateur, informed but amateur financial analysts uh, beyond anything we have to say about baseball, where the Wilpons are concerned and what Alderson can do. Because, once again, other then based on some, you know, pr- presumably informed reporting, we really don't know, you know, what this team is capable of. We have a pretty good guess, I suppose, uh, based on the fact that they're not exactly, you know, tearing into the market and haven't. You know, that this has not been the busiest off season for baseball overall for teams. You know, the Marlins dumped a, a couple of players in very willing recipients' laps, one, one of whom was being paid a fortune. And, you know, there aren't too many uh, teams that, that were li- would have been lining up uh, to pay that number. They probably would have liked uh, his production. And certainly the Mets, you know, weren't, weren't on John Carlos Stanton's list. Um, but just in general, um, you know, I think, you know, we, we – we have a pretty good idea that the parameters in which Alderson is operating are dictated by not an enormous budget. I mean, he didn't really make any bones about it in that sandy way he has of kind of chuckling through the pain. So, you know, he's, you know, to, to I suppose to, to invoke, uh, uh, excuse me, Mike's word, um, you know, there 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 is a thrifty. Uh, I'll be I'll be nice and say thriftiness as opposed to cheapness uh, going on here. But uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. 
three years, $39 million is kind of a bargain as far as we can tell, uh, you know, for a guy who responded well in Cleveland and, you know, who gave us, you know, a good, you know, whatever it was, uh, three quarters of a year last year. Um, it's funny. Uh, what, what is tonight's date, January 16th? You know, the whole thing is still sort of up in the air in terms of the improvements that this team needs to make. And, you know, so just to answer your question, um, you know, I don't think Sandy Alderson is suddenly, uh, you know, getting the the winter of 2005 checkbook, (laughs) Um, you know, just because Omar Minaya is here to hand it to him now. Uh, I don't think that exists anymore. So, you know, we're still waiting on a second baseman or a third baseman, I suppose, depending on where Ostrubal Cabrera lands and probably still waiting on some bullpen help. And you could probably do nicely to find another pitcher, quite honestly. But I don't know what we're going to get at this point. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny. These are the kind of conversations you would have thought that had we been doing this show in, you know, the middle of December, we would just be saying, wow, look what the Mets did at the winter meetings. Instead, we're, we're still sort of scratching our heads and saying, you know, how much do they have to spend? And who are they going to spend it on, if anybody? And the question is, who are they going to spend it on next? Rich, um, Sandy Alderson seems like the perfect guy for the job when the Wilpons needed him to be this guy. And it would be much better if we had an – what's what's his name? Andrew McCarthy from Tampa Bay and then um, uh, Dodgers. But – at the same time, I mean, has do you think Sandy Alderson has done the best that he has to work with? You know, that, that's a great question, Sam, and I don't think any of us really knows the answer to that question. Here's my thought on Sandy Alderson, and this is not meant as a slight in any way, shape, or form, but he was brought here not because he's a winner, because when you look at it, I don't have it in front of me, but I believe he's been a GM on the order of magnitude 26 years or so uh, with, with the Padres, the A's, and the Mets, somewhere in that neighborhood. And he's won once. He's won a World Series once. Now, again, that's better than no times at all, right? Certainly. Sandy Alderson was brought here because the Wilpons were in financial distress, and what Sandy has proven he could do is give you a competitive team on a limited budget. And that is exactly what he's done. I mean, quite honestly, he revamped this thing. He did it when the owners weren't willing to spend a boatload of money. Yes, they spent in 05 when they felt they had a chance, which was appropriate. But he did what he was brought here to do, which is keep the team running, rebuild it, all of that. But Sandy Alderson isn't Brian Cashman. You know, he, he doesn't have all those rings in his, in his trophy case. So has he done the most, to answer your question, has he done the most with what he's had? Damn, how do you know? It's a great question, though. I mean, because what other moves were out there that he could have made? You know, you, you could look at Alderson as a series of – so he's been here since 2011 was his first season, so inclusive, this will be his eighth year. And in the seven previous years, he has one division title, which went to a pennant, and he has that to show for it. Okay, he has a wild card to show for it as well. Two playoff appearances and a complete rebuild in seven years. That's not bad. That's not awful. But what could it have been under someone else? What a great question. You know, and I don't know the answer. Uh, you wonder if a different person with a different philosophy 
would have done it differently and been more successful or less successful, and there's just no way to know. I think that the most important thing that he that he has done, and I think you will see it soon, um, and uh, I, I think that he's a little behind the times when it comes to the Major League roster. But the Mets needed a foundation, and they had never had a GM come in and completely go, I really don't care about what any of you are saying about anything. Because every GM, basically, going all the way back to, you know, right around when Gil Hodges died, and I always put that as the, the, the mark that really threw this entire franchise off, unfortunately. Um, I, I, I think that basically ever since then, that's how Mets have been operating, which is reactionary. Uh, you know, they, they were, su- they, they were slow and built up obviously with Frank Cashin, but he, his thing fell apart. He got, he, he had too much hubris as I am quoting Greg from shameless plug, my newest breed film. Um, you know, it, it's, that's what I appreciate. And what I saw on the first day he was wearing a Mets tie at the press conference, what I saw was his role. And although I think it's completely incomplete right now, and I'll pass it off to Mike after this, I think that I appreciate that element of Sandy Alderson. I appreciate what I, I thought I recognized at the time. And at least there's still that, even if I really do think that when it comes to the major league roster, he sometimes just, it's just a little bit behind the times of what everybody else is, is currently doing. And, and look at the way the Yankees just turned around. My turn? Oh, it's your turn, Mike. <laughs> uh, I think Rich was uh, spot on. Uh, Sandy Alderson is the Mets general manager more through Major League Baseball's insistence than the Will Pond's ability to go out there and actually interview and hire a qualified GM, uh, which I still do not believe they possess that talent. Uh, and that's why the, ter- the the future terrifies me, and I have to wear shades with regards to the future of this organization when Sandy Alderson is gone. Uh, basically, you know, uh, baseball outed Frank McCourt from Los Angeles, and we got Sandy Alderson. That's the way that went down. Uh, but as far as going back to what Greg was saying, as far as what we know and what we don't know about their finances, this is what we do know. Many, many times, Fred Wilpon said that he, his goal is to break even. And he was saying that in the days when he was still balancing his books with Madoff money. Fast forward, 2015, they refinanced $700 million of debt. We are now in year three of that refinancing. That's what we know. Uh, And then the rest, I guess, is contingent upon attendance, as they like to tell us so often, or insinuate, I should say. They don't actually come out and say it, but they insinuate it. We'll spend, but the fans have to come out first. That's not the way to run a, a National League organization in New York City. You spend the money first, then we come. Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I, I, uh, 
before we go down the Will Fun rabbit hole, which is very easily because there were a, a, a bit of there, there has been a bit of news about what Fred Wilpon thinks that, you know, and, and I believe it was from the, the Mark Herrig source, uh, whoever, whoever uh, sources him. Um, I might be mistaken about that, but we'll figure that out at a later time. But before we go down the Fred Wilpon hole, rabbit hole, excuse me, uh, we're going to bounce over to Greg Prince and when, you know, about, about Sandy Alderson and we'll get a little bit more specific here. You know his job, his his grade as a GM, of course, since he's, it's not done yet, is incomplete. But he just made what right now we think is an important hire, and what we think is going to be a hire that pays off, and that is Mickey Callaway. Now, in you know, in an off season when when you're just showing off a, a manager, uh, you know, you're kind of almost in manager purgatory, you know. And this is also for all those listening for the first time who have never listened to the Rising Apple Report podcast. Most of us were very frustrated with Terry Collins going all the way back to 2012 with legitimate desire to fire him in 2013, and we never relented on that even when he was winning playoff games. Um, So now Sandy Alderson has hired a young, what seems to be new-age thinking manager greg and what are your first impressions from what you've heard from mickey and and uh what you think uh lies ahead well you know his his record is that of a blank slate as far as managing is concerned he's never done it before so want to give him every opportunity to uh to, to fill in our perceptions for the good um listen he's not terry collins and in a lot of corners, that will be considered a victory right away. Um, Terry Collins did some fine work, I think. Not all the time, and maybe not in his last year, and it was probably time for him to go. But he did some nice work. There's a pennant flying over the right field porch uh, that attests to that. Um, But like you said, there was a kind of a consensus that time for him to go. So before we got into this off season in terms of player personnel, we needed a manager and they got a guy who is, I have not, I have yet to read one bad thing about Mickey Calloway. Hear anybody say, boy, Calloway ruined those pitchers in Cleveland or he's got some crazy theories or anything like that. It all seems to be positive. And I think between bringing on this guy who is so well spoken of, who, I think new, new agey is kind of a good way to put it. Certainly kind of touchy-feely, uh, you know, the, the human resources manager almost in, in terms of the way he talks about the workplace and the uh, the care and feeding, if you will, of, uh, of Met players. Um, again, the two things we needed were a new manager and do something about the health and well-being of the players. And, well, you know, they got rid of Ray Ramirez. They're bringing in some kind of new Uber trainer uh, overseeing efficiency. Uh, not sure what, what the hell they're going to call it exactly. So, you know, they're doing the things that we need them to do at the top of the pyramid. Um, that alone has got to be worth I, I don't know that you can actually have a metric for this, but that alone has got to be worth a few wins <laughs> as uh, as the the season progresses, or at least the planning for the season progresses. Uh, 
everything I've heard out of Callaway, uh, all his uh, introductory uh, media, all the interviews he's done since then, ha- hasn't disabused me of the notion that the guy is very promising. Um, you know, one, one of those things we say a lot is, you know, the, the proof shall be on the field, and I suppose in the dugout, in the clubhouse, and I'm, I'm sure we'll all find things that, you know, in our minds could be done better because we're fans and, and we all know how to manage a team better than the, the guy they hire. But um, right now I, I think it was a very encouraging hire and I am anxious to see what a uh, Mickey Calloway spring training looks like and what a uh, Mickey Calloway Mets ball club looks like starting March 29th. Rich, before we ask, before I ask you about uh, Mickey Calloway, um, I want to go back to Terry Collins and, and kind of wrap him up and then uh, just ask you to segue to to uh, Mickey Calloway after that. So my question for you is um, with Terry Collins I – mean, okay, so my, before I, I, I ask you the question, I want to preface it with I like Terry Collins. I just didn't like him as a manager. <laughs> I didn't like the in-between – uh, that just didn't seem to get done uh, mostly when it came to on the field stuff. And I just, I just overall thought we could have collected a lot more wins over the time that he was there with the talent given, even if, you know, Vinny Rutino wasn't always the best talent. Uh, but, you know, I, I still do think, I mean, Terry Collins left his mark on this Mets franchise for better or worse. He is the, the, uh, what what is it's the all time it's the longest tenured manager not the all time winningest manager but he's quite up there when you're the longest tenured tenured manager for this uh, Mets ball club. Terry, you know, the Mets brought him in for a reason. You know, they brought him in. He's an old school baseball guy, and he came in and he did that. He did that thing that he was brought in to do. You know, he he had he knew people. He was a scout. He believed his eyes. You know, he wasn't the advanced metrics guy. So he was the counterbalance to the Sandy Alderson philosophy, thinking, you know, I assume the thinking was diversity of thought will produce a better outcome. Great. So you had Sandy, who's metrics-driven. You had Terry, who's an age-old, you know, old, died-in-the-wool baseball guy, believes his eyes kind of a thing. And he did the job he was asked to do. You know, he oversaw the 2012 Mets. You know, yeah, we all know they got out of the gate really quickly, but then it just, you know, really turned to crap. And then the the 2013 Mets, that were just as bad, you know, 14 was the beginning of turning the corner. You could start to see it. But those were three long years of just losing and playing with Vinny Rotino, you know, and, and, um, and playing with, with guys like Andres Torres in center field, you know, and things like that. And, and he, he took it. He took it like a man, and, and that's good. And he did all those things. But then, as you and I have talked about, and Mike, so many times on this podcast, when it was time for the team to go from the transformation was over, and now they were in, okay, it's time to win mode, probably wasn't the right guy for the job. He probably wasn't. You know, the game had probably passed him by a bit he did the best he could. He's not a bad guy, you know, nothing like that. That's not what, that's, we've never said that on, on the podcast. Just probably wasn't the right guy for the job at that point. You know, his old school philosophies weren't, weren't what it took to win in this day and age. And, yeah, he got the team to the World Series in 2015. That's great. But, like you said, what could have happened with a more um, in-tune manager in the dugout? Who knows? 
Who knows? And, and, and uh, I, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. If I may about Callaway before, and then I'll be done here. But, but with with Callaway, I agree with everything Greg said. You know, the Mets to me the most important thing when they were looking for a manager this off season was somebody outside the organization. When things, you know, when you have a season like 2017, you need a fresh voice, a fresh perspective. You know, going with somebody like Dick Scott or Kevin Long, more of the same, was not going to get it done. And I will stand on, a, on the Empire State Building and applaud the Will Bonds and Sandy for hiring Mickey Calloway for that reason. He's the exact opposite of Terry. He's from outside the organization. He's analytics and metrics driven. He's very good with the press. He's all of those things. And it was time for a fresh voice, a fresh perspective. And Mickey really wraps all of that into one person. Yes, he hasn't managed a game yet, and we'll probably be on this podcast in July screaming about, screaming about the game he lost the previous night. But it's hard to say that in, in any way that, that the hiring of Mickey Callaway was illogical. It makes perfect sense, given where the state of the organization is. I thought it was a great hire. I really do. Mike, you know, and I want you to definitely go to Mickey Callaway at the end of it. Um, you know, Terry Collins really entertained me, but without getting too much into politics, so does Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's funny because I'll bring up the media aspect of this. The media were 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 circling sharks when Willie Randolph and, and Manuel were here, uh, and and it was a feeding frenzy every night. I mean, they manhandled both of those managers. Uh, Terry Collins was the alpha in all those pressures. Uh, so, you know, he handled himself well in that respect, and, and I, I was happy happy to finally see that, you know, because, uh, uh, again, if, if you really think back, uh, Willie Randolph and, and Jerry Manuel, they caught health in the media, uh, and it was every night, every night. And, and whereas Terry Collins, you know, he told them when to back off. He told them where to go sometimes. Uh, sometimes he was diplomatic. He was a wide range of things. But he was always in control of that presser. Ah, all right, one, twice, once, twice, three times, maybe he he wasn't. But for the most part, he did well in that respect. Uh, as, as Rich said, look, Terry was a good guy to have around for a rebuild. Uh, you know, and along the way, they won the National League, you know, championship. So what's fair is fair. You had to give him an an extension, and that's what they did. But we wanted him out a long time ago. And on that note. Uh, I forget whether I read it in the New Yorker or the New York Times, but I, I promise you I did read it. Fred Wilpon was protecting him the whole time. You know, there were several times that Sandy Alderson wanted to part ways, but Fred protected him. And again, uh, you know, I, I read that either in the Times or the New Yorker. Uh, Mickey Calloway, look, whatever they, whatever the Mets did to this point was a fail. We could explore it any which way, but at the end of the day, it was a fail. Injury, conditioning, execution. So being that this rebuild was predicated on pitching, I understand bringing in Callaway. I wish this team was constructed, you know, somewhat more differently. Uh, again, I'll go back to center field. I, you know, I, there's a couple of things I, 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 I wish Sandy Alderson would have done differently. But being that the rebuild was predicated on pitching, I understand bringing him in. Uh, and I have no problem with Callaway. So, you know, this is an attempt to maximize, you know, this staff. Uh, and my last 
I, I guess, sense of this whole thing. I'll go back to the, the baseball trinity, pitching, defense, and timely hitting. Well, pitching is, after all, the, the strength of this team. Unfortunately, defense is going to be lacking, and timely hitting, well, that remains to be seen. You know, before we go off on any other direction, I think we owe it to Terry Collins on this inaugural pro- uh, podcast to give him the proper send-off. And so uh, I'm, I'm going to start with you, Greg, of course, with this. I um, Going with what Mike said about Terry in the presser, I think that some of of Terry's best moments and and the moments that where he actually turned the team around twice uh, were, were from the pressers and and you got to give him credit where credits due the way he talked to his players through the media really paid off especially I would say in 2016. Yeah, I. I... Assume you're thinking of the, uh, the the afternoon he walks in after they're swept by the Diamondbacks. Uh, they looked absolutely horrible. I think that was a nine nothing loss that day, and I forget the exact words he used, but uh, you know it was a, a great deal of shape up or ship out. Uh, you know we've we've got guys in Las Vegas who are would be happy to take your place, and then he kind of storms out of there. And it was the uh, the right message at the right moment. Um, so the, the one thing that always impressed me about Collins, and I said something similar uh, a little while ago, I guess, about Callaway, although Callaway, it, it's all kind of, you know, word on the street is good, but with, with uh, Collins, you know, there, there is a track record to back it up. Uh, until the end, I mean, literally like the last week of the season when they're – was, uh, you know, all kinds of, uh, shall we say, knives in the back on the way out. Uh, You know, everybody praised him as a communicator. You didn't read too many of those, you know, I don't know what my role is here type of quotes. Uh, To the contrary, guys went on record talking about how, you know, Terry spelled it out for them, uh, what, what they were supposed to do, what was expected of them. I mean, no, nobody less than Carlos Beltran, who played for Terry in, you know what, for four months at the outset in 2011, um, talks about him as, like, the best manager he ever had to the point where when he interviewed for the Yankee managerial job, he let it be known he would have wanted Terry Collins as his bench coach. And when you figure that, you know, a guy like Beltran who is, you know, around – for 20 years, who is so well respected in the game, you know, points to a guy who managed him for four months as you know the ideal manager. I think tells you something. And you know, he, as you know, you guys were saying, he did not have the most sparkling rosters from which to choose, and he yet somehow managed to make everybody feel a part of the whole, which is not easy. Again, it might have. The magic might have worn off by September of 2017, and that's to be expected in a year like last year was. But, uh, you know, the the media, again, the media is is not an easy audience. I mean, some of it is kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. I always get a kick out of writers for New York papers and broadcasters for New York outlets saying, the New York media sure is tough. Well, guys, you're the New York media. 
but honestly, I, I thought for the most part they were putty <laughs> in Collins's hands. Uh, and again, everybody to a reporter said the same thing, which was he was great to deal with. He was you know, straight, didn't play games, uh, certainly you know gave gave good copy. Um, sometimes, as a fan, I wished he could have uh, you know controlled himself a little bit. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, you know, the, the whole the whole bit with Johan and the no hitter and Collins having a conniption fit over letting him throw an extra five, ten, fifteen pitches. Uh, to me, that's always sort of taken a bit of a shine off what should have been you know, short short of two World Series championships, the greatest moment in franchise history. But uh, you know that's just that that's water under the bridge at this point. So you know he well, he was brought in you know to to uh, Again, to, to go back to one of the themes that we had earlier, he was a bargain. Uh, he, he did not demand a uh, Tony LaRusso-like contract or anything uh, circa 2011. He was certainly, you know, desperate probably to have the job. Not not that it's not a job worth having. I mean, it's uh, only 30 of them. But, um, you know, he made the most of it. I don't think any of us would have guessed that we'd be talking about Terry Collins as the most tenured manager in Mets history, we probably didn't guess that we'd be talking about one of the only two managers to uh, to bring the Mets to the postseason twice, one of only five managers to bring the Mets to a World Series. So, um, you know, yeah, there, there's a lot to applaud there. And uh, he handled things well. And it, it's funny how you, you guys know that whatever the sport, but baseball certainly uh, fit, fits the bill. Whoever you're bringing in, you need to be the opposite of the guy who just left. At least that's the conventional wisdom. You know, you got a fiery guy, then bring in a quiet guy. You're getting rid of the quiet guy, bring in a fiery guy, that sort of thing. And there's, a, like I said, there's a lot to feel good about the Terry Collins era, but it was time to bring in, at least on paper, somebody who is the opposite. And that's where we are now. And uh, like I said, I look forward to seeing what Callaway is all about. Can, can I ask the panel this question before we move on? Before Mickey Calloway even manages a game, does any of this strike you as a little bit Jeff Torborgish? Uh, in what just, sense? I'm sorry, Greg. Go ahead. No, I just want to know in what in what sense? In the sense mean, that. Uh, you know, we were moving on to a great communicator and somebody who was going to bring the clubhouse together, kumbaya, and that's the sense that I got when the Mets hired Jeff. May, may, I, may I just say, as somebody now, who the, didn't... The team was completely uh, different. <laughs> right, well, hold, hold, before, before, the peop, before the people who lived through 1992 uh, speak, which is, which is funny that I would cut you off, but um, what... what I, from knowing about 1992, would perceive as different is that you don't have some of the crazy, ridiculous egos and a big change in kind of the structure of player uh, of player and owners and, and coaches. I just think 1992 was just like this perfect storm, and and you 
you don't have, even though I'm sure, I mean, to get to the point that all these ball players have to be, you have to have egos, and of course you have Joanna Cespedes involved. But I still think that there were, like, you had a Bobby Bonilla involved back in the day where, who was threatening people, you know, with knives. And, and there was just all these different <laughs> stories of dysfunction back then, or, you know. And, and so, so go, go ahead, whoever wants to take it from there of the 1992-1993 season ticket holders. No, let's not go there. I'm just saying I hear a lot of the same things being said of Callaway that I heard, you know, being said about Jeff Torborg. That's all. Well, Teams so regardless. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll let Rich take it, but just what, what I remember where we were going into 92 versus where we are going into 18, you're coming off of 91, which is kind of forgotten because 1992 has such a kind of has a nickname to it because of the, of the book that was written, Worst Team Money Could Buy. The 91 team was, you know, that, that, that was the equivalent of, you know, when you're coming down with a cold and you, you know, in a couple of days, you're going to feel really awful. That's what 1991 was like as a Mets fan, I thought. And that was the Bud Harrelson year, full year that he wasn't able to get out. And and what was complained about Harrelson was, what to my recollection, it wasn't so much that Bud Harrelson doesn't communicate, although he didn't. Uh, and we need somebody to communicate. We need we need a guy who's going to toughen up uh, these guys because they were walking all over Harrelson and Torborg. Yes, he was a communicator but he was also an old-school baseball guy. And to Sam's point about Benia, I don't think – remember, Torborg was in place, and then they brought in Benia and brought in Saberhagen. Coleman was coming off for one bad year. Um, I, I think that, that that is an interesting parallel. If, if nothing else, they both have Cleveland in their background. And, you know, Torborg was sort of a panacea for, you know, what, where we had fallen from at least, you know, conceptually in October of 91. And he certainly came in highly recommended. He had been American League Manager of the Year just one year before. Um, nobody – sort of like with Art Howe, actually, I think, in that nobody ever really stopped to ask you, why is this guy so available if he's such a great manager? Although I think by, by Art Howe's time, people were wising up a little bit. But, um, listen, every – Manager, and there haven't been too many who've come in cold from another organization in the history of this organization. You know, just the grass is always greener type of situation. Um, Tor- Torborg had actually managed to wear out a welcome in Chicago, uh, which I don't think we, we quite caught on to uh, in New York. Um, so I keep saying, you know, there's a bit of a clean slate here. Um, and I think Callaway, I, the fact that we're, what are we now, 26 years later, I think, I think Callaway is speaking a whole other language than we've ever heard from a Mets manager. So I'm not, I'm not getting terrible Torborg flashbacks, but Mike, I definitely am going to now. <laughs> uh, Rich, I, before, before I, I had a, it's funny because Mike, you cut me off from like a random, random question about this era. And you went to a completely, basically like, like you know, uh, yeah, um, twenty de- twenty years before. I like I was going to ask about like a specific uh, parallel, not really parallel, or whatever. But it's just really funny. But Rich, I want you to continue with this before I bring up my question that I had for Greg before we kept going with where what Greg had been talking about. Well, 
I had never really thought of the Torbor comparison at all. And when Mike said it, 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 it kind of gave me a chill because that, that just brings back such a terrible memory. Um, but to Mike's point, I could see why you would say it, Mike, because when Torborg had his press conferences, he you know he was all about um, he was all about the the team and bringing the clubhouse together, all those things that you said, and and to some degree Callaway echoes that. And if you remember, Al Harrison hired Torborg, and he touted him around like you know he was a shiny new toy. I've got Jeff Torborg, you know, one year removed from American League Manager of the Year, blah 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 blah. blah. Mets kind of did the same thing with Callaway. We've got this great guy, you know, and, and you know, he, he presents well and all that stuff. So those are the comparisons, and I can see why you would make it. I'm um, reassured by the fact that the men are different, as has been pointed out. You know, Torborg was the old school guy. Callaway is the sort of the new era younger guy. So there's that. Um, also about him being so available, that was very suspicious in the case of Torborg, having him been the American League Manager of the Year the, uh, one year prior, as we said. In Callaway's case, this is a young rising star that had obviously never managed in the big leagues, but was pretty much universally recognized as this guy's going to be something. So he hasn't had a shot yet, but this guy's going to be something. So I, I'm encouraged by that difference as well. But, um, but you know, Mike. <laughs> You successfully, you successfully are, are giving me nightmares, Dom, and I can't get it out of my mind. Like I can't unhear what you said about the comparison. <laughs> I'm the armadillo that no, just but, suddenly but, pops out in the middle of the road. Man. <laughs> but 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 that's the that's the thing, though. I think you bring up a, a, a good point, though. That and that's what I love about the hire is that we got a we got we may have gotten a rising star at just the right time that the Mets needed to get it, and and that. The, the combination of what Sandy Alderson was trying to do with the foundation of the franchise from a uh, minor leagues perspective and also compared to what, you know, when you look at teams like the Angels, teams like the Cardinals, teams that have managers uh, through thick and thin and don't deal with this reactionary way that we, we have here in New York, especially with the Yankees hovering over us all the time. Uh, which is something I'll get to in the newest breed. Uh, wink, wink, hint, hint. Uh, shameless plug, as Mike likes to say. But um, before we go anywhere else, Greg, I wanted to throw a random name out to you because you mentioned the rosters that Terry Collins had to deal with. And I wonder what are the thoughts and feelings when I say, say the name Jason Pretty? Oh, Jason Pretty. Uh, outfielder, 2011, Friday, if Friday. I recall correctly. Yes, um, I always thought of a uh, the, uh, the the Black 47 song, Funky Chelly, and uh, the 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 name of the girl uh, the lead singer is serenading is Bridie, and like throughout the 2011 season, I just heard it in my head. Uh, except I changed it to Pridey in my mind. Um, I don't. I don't know if uh, I'm supposed to remember anything in particular about Jason Friday. I remember he. Had, I remember he had a beard, um, which didn't see too many of at the time, or maybe that was just when you were seeing a lot of players with beards. I remember he, you. You know, was one of those guys came up from. I guess it was Buffalo at the time. Had a few big hits, and it was like, wow, we got Jason Friday. Isn't this great? And then you know, the, the year wore on, and uh, you know, the the excitement kind of wore off. Um, you know that that was. 
the season, you know, again, Collins' first season when, you know, we knew they had no budget. You know, what were they doing? They were getting rid of Carlos Beltran and Frankie Rodriguez uh, strictly for payroll flexibility reasons, to put it kindly. And that, that you know, probably is a good, a good avatar of that year, but really the guy whose name will always be linked with the 2011 Mets who greeted Terry Collins, in my mind, is Brad Emus. The uh, you know the bargain basement yeah. uh, dollar store <laughs> second baseman who they got from the Rule Five draft, which was all you needed basically to be to be the, a starter in the Mets lineup when the 2011 season began. And I, you know, one of the things that impressed me very quickly about Sandy Alderson in that first year was that they got Brad Emus on the on the next train to Palookaville uh, before April was out because they realized that, oh, there's a reason he was available for next to nothing. But um, you know, Jason Pridey, one of those guys who, you know, I I seem to recall him having a – I remember it was a Saturday night. I don't remember who it was against, but I remember he had a couple of big hits, maybe had a home run that night. Um, I think him and Josh totally, like, went I – mean, if not back-to-back, then in the same game. For some reason that sticks in my mind, but uh, – the Jason Pridey era was a, a short, if inglorious one. And um, I hope he's doing well, whatever it is he's up to. Rich, what is it about the Mets that I like? What, what, what is it about this team that I love the fact that they have players like Jason Friday and Andrew Brown and uh, Darren O'Day? who unfortunately probably would have made 2009 better. Um, and, and you know, all these random names. Uh, oh, God. Uh, Corey Sullivan. There's a name. Uh, 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 Juan Valdez. No, wait. That's that's not a – was that – I think you're thinking of Raul Valdez. Rich. <laughs> Raul Valdez, excuse me. Rich, what, what is it? What is it that like? I, I love that. How how there's just something so Mets about the names that we remember that are some random. It's just such random names that the rest of baseball, literally the rest of baseball, will never remember unless they were some other random player on a Minnesota Twins team. Well, you know, Sam, you put a big smile on my face when you mentioned Vinny Rutino because. I mean, how many people remember Vinny Rutino? And yes, I know he was the. Uh, He's in 2000... my movie. He's in my movie. <laughs> <laughs> but but they had some. He strikes some of the... out in my movie, mind you. He strikes out. But let's continue. So so Vinny, I actually kind of liked him. I mean, I, he wasn't a star certainly, but but when he was on the team, he hustled. He had a little bit of speed. He played different positions. So, but yeah, the Mets have had those random guys come through, particularly in the rebuilding years. You know, the, the 11, 12, 13, particularly 12 and 13, you know, when they were struggling just to put a, a team on the field, it seemed like at times. You, know, you have guys like, uh, well, I mean, to bring up a terrible memory, Frank Francisco. I mean, here's a guy where, you know, we talked about oh, Sandy Alderson God. earlier. Right. We talked about Sandy Alderson earlier. And, and remember the year it was going into the 2012 season, he had a certain amount of money to spend. And at the winter meetings, he was very upfront about it. He's like, you know, I have, you know, $18 million to spend or whatever it is, whatever the number was. And his first major signing was Frank Francisco. He felt he needed a closer, and this guy was available. Then all you saw on ESPN and whatever outlet you were looking at was Frank Francisco throwing a chair into the stands. You know, that's what this guy's known for. 
and um, when he had the altercation with the fan. And so Frank Francisco obviously comes in, and um, he's dreadful. But, yeah, you know, you can go through through some of those Mets years, and there aren't, they aren't really that far in the past, and you dredge up some of these names, you know, Corey Sullivan, like you said. It, you know, decent player. Manny you know. Acosta. Manny speaking Acosta. Of, speaking, of, speaking of Adrian Gonzalez, <laughs> I will never forget Manny Acosta and Adrian Gonzalez together because Manny Acosta gave up a grand slam that was a walk-up home run in San Diego once. Right. Right. We all remember that, right? So um, so you have guys like that who have come through. And, um, oh, Greg, help me with this. The guy who pitched, the, he was over 40, pitched the last game of 2012, pitched a complete game shutout. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Batiste Miguel uh, Batista. Um, uh, last yes. game of 2011, actually. Right, last game of 2011. That was, right. that was Jose, Jose Reyes' uh, single and see you later game. Right. What, right. what was the what was the game that what was the game that um, Mike Baxter hit like a two run home run and somebody had a, a are you sure that was 2011 then because maybe that was this all, is the game yeah, I'm that was thinking all, of that. that was all the same game that was the the, the Jose goodbye Mike game Baxter. against the Reds yeah ba- Baxter and Mike homered. Baxter was there in 2011 and Miguel Batista threw a shot yeah threw threw the shutout. And just to uh, – I realize that those years are all blurring together like crazy now, but uh, if I could just, just jump <laughs> right. in on Vinny Rotino. One particular memory of Vinny Rotino, when uh, when you watch uh, – and SNY shows it every few weeks uh, – when you watch the no-hitter and you see uh, Santana's mob by his teammate, you see number 33. And my first instinct is saying, oh – there's there's a young Matt Harvey, and I say no, that's not Matt Harvey. Matt Harvey wasn't going to be up for another <laughs> month and a half. That's Vinny Rotino, and you see that guy who runs out in the Gary Carter jersey, <laughs> who who uh, security tackle. And they remember, might as well be remember the. They might as well be the I was going to say the Rotino score was because, like you know they would take the away score this, was eight uh, nothing. Yeah, but uh, you know Vinny Rotino and then like half of the guys running on the field. Uh, who there? There was a, not not. Um, there were like two guys named Ramirez. Elvin Ramirez, it's like I had just been called up. I think uh, Jack Egbert was in that bullpen. I mean, th- you know, thank goodness that uh, Terry left Johan in because that's you know what you, what the box score would have looked like. So um, you know, I'm sure <laughs> other teams have these guys. Uh, we just don't care because we're not fans of those teams. But um, you know, Corey Sullivan. Yeah, you know, I, mean, I think he had five triples in 2009, which is a an insane amount for a guy who was here for 10 minutes. Do you remember that the original City Field dimensions were designed by Jeff Wilpon, so we could have lots of triples and basically no home runs for uh, for the first three years. So, you know, with Jose Reyes on the disabled list most of that year, uh, it became the Corey Sullivan Triple Festival, and. I imagine he might have scored on one of those, but I just kind of have a, a sense that he was stranded on third five times. Guys, I'm not sure if any of us play instruments. Can we please uh, start a band called the Corey Sullivan Triple Festival? That is <laughs> something that most people will not guess. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> I was going to ask about um, I, I, I forget exactly what with all that. Like you said, Greg, it all blurs together, so who knows what I was going to ask about. Uh, guys, I, I have a surprise for for all of us. Somebody say, what's the surprise? 
What's, what's, what's the surprise, surprise Sam? <laughs> it's Long Island Mike. Long <laughs> Island Mike. <laughs> what's we up? had to have him on. How you doing, Mike? Yeah. Good you. Mike, well, well, what do you want to talk about, Mike? This is your inaugural episode, and you obviously have a much deeper voice than we remember. <laughs> uh, I, I just don't like this off season. It's boring. It's, it's <laughs> but would pathetic. you recognize that most of baseball has had a boring off season? Yes, but we're not going to get Mike Moustakis. We're not going to J.D. Martinez, so what does it matter at the trade? Why didn't play the season? I'm telling you, the Yankees are just going to win the World Series. So that's your prediction right now. You yep. will go to Vegas with 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 your money, whatever weather money you've earned so far. And I don't mean to troll you, sorry, but <laughs> <laughs> you will bet the Yankees are going to win the World Series, and it's not going to be beating the Mets. No, it's going to be Yankees. Uh, hmm. Who who is good in the National League? You know what? Uh, this is going to be. I'm going to regret this, but Yankees and Nationals. Yankees and Nationals. Okay, so uh, why don't we go off of that before? I, I have one other question to ask uh, Long Island Mike, but before we uh, we go to that, why don't we go off of that uh, predictions? I hate predictions, guys. I absolutely hate predictions. But 2018 is upon us. We're going to be soon getting to a little bit of Mets history, so we might as well go to predictions with 2018. Greg, 2018, you don't really necessarily need to predict anything. I I predict I'm going to be really depressed if it's a Nationals-Yankees World Series. I don't even want to think about it. I'm going to to pass on that Honestly, that is worse than Phillies-Yankees in 2009. Because at least the thing about the Phillies... I have been thankful that I have never had to live through a Yankees-Cardinals World Series. That, for some reason... (laughs) I I know Yankees-Phillies was horrible. I know Yankees... Braves in 1999 was horrible. 96 didn't really matter so much because we didn't really have the Braves thing going. Yankees Cardinals would just be the worst, I think. Uh, really, now that yeah, I've said it out loud, maybe it's going to happen. Again, I, I was only one year old in 1964, so I didn't live through that, and I don't think I would have minded the outcome. But as I remember, September of '85, you know, we were we were battling the Cardinals. The Yankees were battling the Blue Jays, and I thought. What is the absolute worst thing that could happen? We don't make the playoffs, and they do, and these two teams that I despise will play each other. And now every year, even for the dynasty of the late 90s and 2000s where we lost, the one thing I've always been grateful for is there's never been a Yankee Cardinal World Series in modern times. So I will predict that a Yankee Cardinal World Series would be worse than a Yankee National World Series. And hopefully none of it comes to pass in 2018. Yeah. Uh, before before we we continue with that, I just wanted to say, Greg, I'm sorry I cut you off earlier, but what I was uh, saying when you mentioned the uh, the uh, the uh, Gary Carter uh, uh, jersey that ran out onto Johan Santana's no hitter was that it was eight nothing, and the, the fact that he died that year in that February, there felt like there there just felt like something. Like, he had something to do with all of that, especially with the mystique of the ball and Adrian Gonzalez yes. deciding it was 
it was foul. You know, the fact that it was 8 nothing really stood true. But what really felt crazy about it was that some dude in a Gary Carter jersey says that he didn't he felt like he couldn't stay in the stands. Like when when he he's talking about it, it's like it's ruined my life. I wish I haven't done I didn't do it. But he said something came over him and I don't think he was all that spiritual about it and he didn't think it about it from this angle. But I have always thought about it from that angle because that's what I do with baseball and that's what I did with the Yankees Red Sox two thousand four series that helped guide me towards the Mets. I, uh, it, 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 I saw certain signs that Babe Ruth was now back on the Red Sox side, uh, and I don't need to get into them now because we're on a Mets podcast, but it certainly helped guide me towards the, uh, the Mets that, are, that will change my life for better or worse, right? <laughs> I would say mostly better, that is for sure. So, um, but, but yeah, Rich, prediction. Or, 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 you know, brush the whole thing aside because I hate them too. Yeah, it's hard. You know, it's hard to predict because I don't think the Mets are done. I think that you will see improvements in the Major League roster. What they will be is hard to figure. Um, but let's say they do get a Josh Harrison. Let's say that does happen. And, you know, maybe they add another piece somewhere along the line. So, I think the Mets are still too too undefined to predict at this point. But one thing I will say, I was having a conversation with somebody just the other day about this, and, and I agree with this. The Mets' window for winning is still open. Now, granted, you know, the pitching, there are a lot of question marks, a lot of injuries. But when you think about it, if these guys could come back healthy, and we all know pitching is the lion's share of the game, insert your favorite percentage, but it's the lion's share of the game. If they get these guys pitching up to their capabilities – they already have a decent lineup. You add a couple of pieces. I think the bullpen is fine. I, it's not the best bullpen in baseball, but I really don't see it as a huge weakness right now. So they've, their window is open. So give me one, ideally two, good position players to add to this team. And if everybody stays healthy, I, I think they can give the Nationals a run. I really do. I agree, and may I also throw out there that what also really drove me crazy about this entire no-hitter thing was the fact that the hits are also eight, by the way. The Mets also had eight hits in the game. They had eight runs, and they had eight hits, and Gary Carter ran onto the field to join them in the circle. That was the third middle of the like, I'm sorry, that, that's incorrect considering they've had pennants and they've had whatever. But in terms of the three most important things, like Greg said, that have happened to this Mets franchise, the 69 World Series, the 86 World Series, and the no-hitter, uh, Gary Carter was there for at least two of them as far as I'm concerned. Mike, wherever you want to go. Uh, a prediction? How about if I uh, try to hit the plate with the changeup? Uh, I'd be satisfied if they're still playing 500 baseball by the 4th of July and, and they're healthy and, and we see things going well. You know, you could be 500 and, and things are clearly going badly. So the opposite of that is playing 500 and still things going well. 
and, and then I'll take my chances through the dog days of summer and see and see what happens. That's as far as I can give as a uh, for a prediction. I mean, considering we're coming off a of 92 losses, you know, this is going to be the tenth season of City Field, if I'm not correct, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, we've only had two winning seasons. So I'm just trying to be a little pragmatic about this and say, come on, let's just play 500 baseball, reverse uh, what hopefully is not another long-term trend that, you know, they may have may not started last year. That's it. You know, how about another winning season at City Field, huh? Yeah, you know, would – that's a great question. Uh, Mike, before we let you go, I'm going to have you on the tail end of this. So, Greg, would you take another 2005? Uh, a better year than the year before, real signs of life and progress and a sense that, uh, you know, we might win this thing as late as uh, the turn into September. Yeah, because last year was such a disaster. Um, you know, we hope it's an aberration. We hope that that window is still ajar. But uh, to go 83 and 79 and, again, you know, establish some guys and, uh, you know, serve as a launching pad for better things, uh, I'd, I'd gladly take that. Again, you know, if we're, if we're five games up in July and then blow it, then uh, I'll, t- I'll take it back. It was not a good, as good as Houston in 2005 then. But, uh, yeah, I'd take that in a heartbeat. Yeah, you don't want a 78 or a 2012 or a 2010 or a, oh, my God, I'm not going to keep going. Uh, Rich? Interesting. Uh, given the choice between a repeat of 2005, sign for that now, or take my chances, I'm going to go the other way, Greg. I'll, I'll take my chances on this season because, I don't know, I mean, t- we know the outcome of 2005. Yes, they got the, the ship turned around and they got it pointed in the right direction for what was a very good 2006. But with this particular team, while I said the window is open, I'm not sure how long it stays open. You know, you're going to have these guys, you're going to start losing players eventually. The pitchers aren't going to be around forever. It's not really a youth movement where you have a lot of prospects ready to fill the pipeline and all of that. I think you kind of have to try to win now with this team. So I would say I'll roll the dice on the season rather than taking a repeat of 2005. Mike. Uh, ditto. Ditto. Uh, we're, we're in good shape, as Rich says. We're in good shape. This window is still wide open. Uh, I would like for the front office to make a couple of more enhancements, but we're, we're all right. So uh, we should be on an uptick. You know, let's see what happens. Uh, like I said, I started out the show being the, the the negative Nancy, and here I am being somewhat optimistic about the season. So, flip a coin. Long Island Mike, before I pass it on to you for the last word of yours, um, I have always, even going into 2017, had a feeling about 2018. I don't know if that feeling is completely there because I still need to. I, it's, I think it's still complete. It, it's incomplete. But with the whole Mickey Calloway thing, I think it still puts me over the edge. And I didn't necessarily see it coming when I thought that 
this year was going to be better than than any of the other years. I didn't think that. I just thought that everything made sense to come together. You had, uh, you know, you had Dominic Smith. You had almost Rosario most likely coming up. And obviously with the whole Dominic Smith thing right now, you have potentially him either in AAA or not performing as much. Um, I think, and we can get into Adrian Gonzalez in a moment, and Mike, do not, Long Island Mike, do not think that's exactly where you're going to start. So you start wherever you're going to start, but don't start with Adrian Gonzalez. Uh, So, I think that I'm still holding that 2018, I am substantially more optimistic going into this season than I was going into 2017. And I wasn't really broadcasting it as much going into 2017 that I was more optimistic about 2018 because why do that? I wanted to be optimistic about 2017 because that's what you do. But I've always had this better feeling about 2018, and that's what I'm going with with 2018. So without further ado, we leave it to Long Island Mike to finish his last uh, uh, moment of the inaugural episode of a Metzian podcast with Sam Rich and Mike. If we can, if we stay healthy, then we have a legit chance. Did they ever decide who our training staff was yet or no? Hello. I I mean I don't I don't know about uh, replacing Ray Ramirez, but I know that they've done uh, they've done something in terms of replacing people on their their uh, their health staff. They've completely you know changed around exactly the way they go about communicating. Uh, Greg, you've probably been monitoring this a lot, so if you want to take this. You know they've they've announced uh, I forget again I forget what the title is director of performance some some highfalutin title uh, to kind of be oversee the athletic trainer which is what Ray Ramirez did I don't you guys can correct me if I'm wrong I don't think they've announced uh, the names of the people who will have those positions yet though um, you know probably by by opening day, we'll we'll be sure to know who they are, so we'll know who to direct our uh, preemptive animosity towards when they're introduced. But uh, so far, I don't think we, we have, have their, uh, We have identities. nobody else to boo <laughs> when opening day comes around. Like, Ray Ramirez isn't there unless they go, and, ladies and gentlemen, the Wilpons. Yeah, you know I think what? That I'm My guess is something. the Wilpons are not going to be cool with I'm going to go out of the limb and say something. Mets sign Chase Utley. Chase Utley. Is he still a free agent right now? Yep. He is. Dude. Yeah. I'll do it. I'll sign up for it. Anybody? <laughs> you know... I'll jump in on that one. I've never had an issue with bringing guys to the team who, you know, we quote-unquote don't like, I mean, or whatever, for because of their He's experience. He's kind of awesome. That's one of the reasons why we don't like him. 
Right. I mean, it's like, look, uh, apart from somebody who has, you know, legal issues or anything or moral issues, I don't care who the hell you bring on the team. If a guy killed the Mets for 10 years before this season and he's available and he fits a need on my team, I'll take the freaking guy. You know what I mean? I would, if, if Utley could fill a hole on the team, which I'm not even sure he can, but, but if he, well, oh you know, left-handed bat it's off. Sandy, it's, you know, it's, it's that. I would so respect that move on Sandy's part. <laughs> I would love to see City Field opening day. Oh, my God. We'd fucking give him a standing ovation. Fuck it. Excuse me. Yo, we're independent now. Let's do it. <laughs> you, you know who I, do you know who I would find utterly preferable to having, to be honest? Uh, um, and I know that three names have came up during the course of the uh, off season. One of whom is, you know, no doubt off the board because they've uh, gone in other directions. I've heard Mustakis, Hosmer, and Kane. I don't want any 2015 Kansas City Royals on the match <laughs> because I'm still not one. over that. Not one. No, I don't want any of those. I guys. would take Mustakis. Dave Island. I would take Mustakis. I'll, I'll I'll go that far, but. Um, you know, in and again, I, I don't mind it. if if you somehow brought Pat Burrell, Pat Burrell, <laughs> excuse me, back to life. Uh, Just to round it up. And said, you know, we, up. We're gonna we're gonna put Pat Burrell in left field because you know uh, because Cespedes is out for three months again, and you convinced me that he could still hit. I'd like fine. I don't care that he's a med killer. There's just something about the idea of the 2015 Royals that just brings back nothing but bad memories, especially Mustakas. On Hosmer show, so, I so suppose. You're saying, so you're saying... I just, I just don't so want... I, I don't get the, it. It's, like, there's, but, but, just, there's but, a certain, my, certain flavor of flashback that I can't handle. Uh, you know, it's, so it was some, and I don't know Philly. if I can explain it. It was, it was the difference between being stuck with Tom Glavin for five years and when John Smoltz was, like, kind of on his last legs and they would talk about it. It's like, I could deal with Smoltz. I never wanted Glavin on the team. They're just... Certain guys who just bring it all back to you, all the dismay. So, you know, random 1999 Brave, I don't know, Keith Lockhart, fine, whatever. But don't, like, try <laughs> to give me Chipper Jones, something like that. So, you know, this, this is not no, – I'm not but, talking but, about for, but, the, for the good of the outfit. I'm just talking about for the good of my own personal sanity. <laughs> so uh, Chase Utley I don't think I would enjoy except for the chance to, to boo him every time he came to, to the plate, no matter what the uniform was. But it's, uh, that, that <laughs> he's about 68 years old. But uh, I just the whought the whole idea that we would sign anybody from the 2015 World Series who beat us in the 2015 World Series, who, as opposed to Adrian Gonzalez, who, who hammered our pitching very well in, the, in those playoffs. But, you know, we beat them, so I don't care. So that's just, that's just a personal opinion. I I think at that point, if they can help your team, unless you're just so scarred by Vince Coleman that you you uh, that's just the, the the comparison I make here is that that you know the '85 thing, and because I think that like Mustakas could probably help this team because unfortunately, as much as we don't like to to think about it. Uh, Mustakis going, okay, 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 off on the sides after Noah Syndergaard threw the pitch in. They might have lost that game, but unfortunately they won the war. So don't you want a player like that 
on your side? No. Unless no, I don't you want Mike Moustakis <laughs> or any of the 2015 Kansas City Royals. I, I'd sooner go back in time and sign off on Vince Coleman and Tommy Herr becoming Mets in the early 90s, knowing what I know. Done. Than wanting those guys. I just, there's something about, and I, I used to like the Kansas City Royals, one of my favorite American League teams, either when they were playing the Yankees in the playoffs or just being, you know, a, an underdog Midwestern, perfectly nice team, and I wished them well. And I didn't, even though I was rooting for the Giants in 2014, I, I would not have minded seeing the Royals go all the way. It was a great story. That ended. And they're going to have to, like, just go through an entire generation before I can stand to look at them again. So, no, no, I, I don't, you can use all the logic okay. you want. You can tell me about okay. who would fit the need okay. perfectly. Don't okay. want to see Mike Moustakis okay. on the Mets. <laughs> you know what? I thought okay. I had successfully. Okay. I thought I had successfully repressed Tom Herr from my memory. Thank you, Greg. Oh, my good Boy, am I going to lose sleep tonight, man. That well, hurts. you gave me Jeff Colbert to take to bed. I gave you Tommy Herr, so I guess we're uh, going Touche. Oh, my I goodness. Hope, I hope everybody, I, I, I hope everybody uh, has appreciated the fact that I've opened up the, the, the floor for uh, cusses, as they say in Fantastic Mr. Fox. Are you cussing at me? So we're actually going to be cussing on this show. Uh, tell your kids uh, or don't, because that's up to you as parents. So, um, Rich, take it away. Why not? About horrible Met memories, or I, uh, just, what, I don't know, man. I don't know. This is this. Is, right. we're, Let me we're, throw we're, this we're one out there. Let me throw this out there, guys. I, I, I have one. Back. I have one for you guys, you know, focusing back on 2018. Uh, so if the Mets could acquire one player realistically of names that are out there that they've been linked to or whatever, I'd like to throw it around the horn just to see, you know, quick answer. Who, do you, who would you like to have and why I'll start? I'll go with Harrison. I think um, the Mets need an infielder. He could, he could bat at the top of the order. He's also versatile. He's played some outfield. And I don't think he would cost a boatload to get. You know, you might be able to get him for, um, you know, Ligaris and Gesellman, something like that, because the Pirates are clearly rebuilding. They've made it known they're trying to dump him. So given the price tag, given the need he would fill, both defensively and offensively, for me, it's Josh Harrison. We'll jump in, guys. Greg, who would you want to have? Uh, I want Josh Harrison, but you already said him. So I remember <laughs> the name Lance Lynn being out there at the beginning of the off season. I still think this pitching staff could use a little insurance. Uh, an arm that uh, has, has you know, knows how to pitch. Um, he, he would not, you know, I, I would like some kind of, you know, I, I was looking at the various, uh, this dates in Mets history. Today in 2002, we signed Pedro Astacio. There was a Pedro Astacio type on the market, a guy who, you know, you could get out there you know, theoretically 25, 30 times a year in case by some miracle, all our pitchers are not ready to go on opening day because God knows that's never happened before. Um, and I remember Lance Lynn was an intriguing option. Never. Um, never. And uh, I, I, I would not have minded. Uh, I've heard Jonathan Lucroy's name come up because I'm not 100% sold on uh, Darno Ploiecki as the two-headed monster. But uh, I really uh, like that idea, Greg. I like that. I like that idea. And speaking of Jonathan Lucroy, I might look into moving across the street from the ballpark come this spring or summer. 
over here in Denver. But by the way, Rich, may I throw out there that we're on location in Denver, Colorado? By by all means. Uh, of course, there we you, go. Sam. So <laughs> I think I think that uh, with with um, you know Jonathan Lucroy, I think you might it might make sense to make a trade around Travis Darno. Uh Like you said, Greg, I, I think that um, that would be a very creative way for Sandy Alderson to show me that he can, and Greg, you can take this right after me, uh, go into 2018 a little fresher than I think you currently have. Uh, I haven't really thought about it that much, but I, I I wouldn't think after last year with a, maybe three exceptions, there are a whole lot of untouchables on this team. Uh, I think the one thing that seems to impress this front office, which is to say impresses this ownership, is team control and uh, you know whoever salary they can manage. And I'm not exact. I assume Darno is still in that realm of uh, we don't have to pay him all that much compared to other guys. So they they may be uh, reticent to give up on him. And you know you could say, gee, Darno really seemed to be uh, coming on the last couple of months of last year. But if we're looking at it in terms of team control and budgetary constraints, well, Ploiecki is certainly a bargain uh, for for the foreseeable future. So. Yeah, if they could get creative and somebody actually, you know, like Darno, I mean, I'd be interested to see where we get to between now and opening day in terms of Callaway, in terms of a guy who is, is here because of what he's done with pitching. I would assume the catching is sort of part and parcel of, of what he would have, you know, a little extra insight into. So I, I don't have any great suggestions in terms of, well, we could trade Darno for this guy or that guy. But uh, I think you you bring up an interesting idea, Rich. What do you, what do you think about all that? You know, I because I, I, Jonathan Lucroy has been uh, talked about, and uh, like Greg said, it, you know, it it would be interesting to decide uh, going into the season what you're going to do about the Travis Darno Kevin Plavecki thing. And and right now, I liked what I saw. Honestly, I liked what I saw out of both of them, but. I've always been more along the Kevin Plavecki thing because of the injury part. Yeah, you know, the catching position is one that certainly could stand to be upgraded. And I guess the reason I migrated to Harrison more than Lucroy, as much as I'd love to have Lucroy, is I kind of resigned myself to I, I really believe the rhetoric. I think Sandy does like Plavecki and Tarno for the reasons, you know, some of the reasons you've stated, which. Darno, I believe, has two more years this year and next year of team control. Pulecki has several more. They're cheap. You know, they don't come with the price tag. Lucroy would. So as much as I would love to upgrade that position, I've kind of just, you know, it's kind of like kissing your sister. It's like, okay, Ugg, you know, we'll deal with these two guys and we'll just build around it and hope for the best with them. But, yeah, I mean, if, if the organization were willing to plunk down some cash and get rid of the two cheap guys and plunk down some cash for Lucroy and then use either Darno or Ploiecki as in a trade, that makes a lot of sense to me. I'm just not sure they would actually do it. We'll see if they pull the, the plug. Uh, Long Island Mike, I'm going to uh, pass it to you before I pass it back to Mr. Mr. Bensonhurst, Mike. At the end of the season last year, uh, Ploiecki was really showing off what everyone was talking about. 
I'd rather see Polecki as the starting catcher on opening day than Travis Darno. I'm a big fan of Polecki ever since he got called up last year. What did he bat? 300. He was showing off power. He has the cannon for an arm. I prefer him to opening day catcher than Darno. Long on, Mike. I appreciate you you presenting yourself here on the A Messian podcast inaugural episode. Uh, dude, what can I say? Thank you. No problem. Thank you for having me. Definitely, man. Later. Guys, let's let's go from from there. Greg, uh, let's just start from the uh, the top of the uh, the top of the round roundabout. Uh, from what what Long Island Mike said. Uh, you know, I think he uh, he expressed uh, nicely just the fact that we don't have collectively a great deal of, uh, of confidence in Travis Darno, uh, and to be the guy who we remember we traded R. A. Dickey for Travis Darno, and oh by the way, this this hot pitching prospect named Center something, so. Um, you know, it, it's funny how quickly, quickly but not quickly, the years go by. Um, Darno is now what in his uh, entering his sixth major league season has yet to to play a full. You know, not wouldn't play 162 as a catcher, but to be on the roster from beginning to end without a trip to the disabled list or the minors. Um, you know, just just in that. Realm, the guy he came up with at almost the same time in August of 2013, Wilmer Flores, certainly not an old guy, but, uh, you know, both kind of, you know, players just sort of reach that moment where you just realize, uh, to, to, to quote from the boss, uh, maybe we're not that young anymore. And both Flores and Darno have been kind of, you know, on the rise, on the rise, on the rise, and... Where is their prime? Is it now? Have we already seen it? Should we be seeing more? Should we be saying, why are we screwing around with looking at other second base and why don't we just put a Flores out there, you know, 130 games a year? And for that matter, why don't we just, you know, say, hey, you know, Darno catches three out of every five games. Um, I think, again, coming back to Mr. Callaway, uh, those are some of the decisions he's going to have to make uh, in conjunction with the front office. Uh, you know, he, he has impressions to build. It's funny, you know, these guys were, were in many ways in the business of impressing Terry Collins or, uh, as their goal. And now there's somebody coming in. He's necessarily going to have a different way of looking at things, whether it is through advanced metrics, whether it is through the old eye test. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what specifically these two guys who for so long have been the young up-and-comers who are now – at a point where you would think they are fully established, uh, you know, what their future holds. You make a great point about all that. Uh, there's an entire new dynamic to explore in spring training. And, uh, Rich, uh, you know, since we just basically discussed all the catchers, what are you most uh, looking forward to when it comes to this new dynamic in spring training? Well, you know, I, I really want to see how Callaway handles the pitching staff, particularly 
the, trans, the transition from starter to reliever. We've heard a lot of different things. We've heard at one point he doesn't like to see people go three times through the order. Then we heard, oh, that's not so much the case. He's okay with that. We heard he likes guys to go short outings, you know, three innings that was thrown around, which is kind of a very novel and something I don't think you'll ever see. But starters going three, you know, three, three, and three, probably not going to see that. But then we also heard him say that he wants to push these guys. He wants to get them to 230, 235, which they've never done. So how does that play in? It's obviously very contradictory. So the guy's a pitching guy, obviously, and, and I want to see – how he handles the pitching staff. I mean, does he have an innate an innate feel for how to do this? You know, when when is a guy done? When do you go to which reliever? It always seemed to me, and I would ha- hazard a guess that to all of us, that Terry, it kind of seemed like he was throwing a dart against the board at times. So I play the hot hand. I do this. Blah, 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 blah. But does Callaway have a more, I don't know, transparent, scientific way of going about it? That's what I'm looking forward to seeing based on his pitching experience. Rich. Hey, Rich, you there? Yeah. Yeah, you cut off at the end. So if you want to start, just wherever you wanted it, like you think you, you tailed off a little bit at the end. So. Oh, I'm sorry. Say it again. So, (laughs) yes, my basic point was that you asked me what I'm looking forward to seeing the most under Mickey Calloway. To me, it would be some sort of, transparently logical approach as to when the, when you take the start, how far do you push the starters, when do you go to which reliever, because for the past several years, you know, we've always moaned that it seemed like Terry was doing it randomly, so to speak, and if Callaway right, right, based right. on... Okay, so, so yeah. no, but it was literally, it was literally like the last syllable, so it might have been even like the last syllable of whatever you said, but but what what I was going to say about that was that uh, and, and since you brought it back up, I'm going to go from here, and I'll start with you, Rich, and then go to Mike. Um, with Terry, and we were we were singing his praises earlier because, like I said, I wanted to go out. I wanted him to go out appropriately because I do think that he earned his stripes, if you will, or his orange and blue. Because even though we do have ten stripes with the home team, that is what you earn with us you got to believe so um with terry though and what you said with he was just you know something random or whatever it seemed and it it literally uh matt cerrone of mets blog brings this up a lot of times that he put a second baseman that didn't necessarily fit that profile lineup wise if that second baseman was just replacing somebody for that day he'd put him there in the lineup rich what are you doing, Terry Collins? Yeah, all of that. You know, and that's where it, it, my, my philosophy on Terry, and we talked about this before, was when he was with Houston and the Angels, he was, you know, too much of a taskmaster. The players didn't like him, all that kind of thing. And then he reactionarily went all the way to the other side of the, of the fence. He tried to be a player's manager. He tried to accommodate guys, worry about their feelings, play the hot hand as opposed to taking the more cold analytical approach. And, and yeah, that's what you saw. I mean, you, know, you saw a lot of those head-scratching lineups, you know, where why is Wilmer Flores playing second today? I mean, wh- wh- why does that make sense? And, and why is this guy over here? And, you know, it, it seemed like – 
that's the Achilles heel of the manager who goes by gut. The manager says, I'm an old baseball guy, and I know what's going on. I'm going to do this. That's where you have to have some reasonable analytics come into this discussion and, and come into that thought process. So hopefully with Mickey, you'll be able to say, I get it. I get what he's doing. My guy's not playing tonight. You know, I'm a big uh, blah, blah fan, and he's not in the lineup today. But you know what? I could see why Callaway's doing this. I could see why he's playing this guy here because of, you know, this supports it. It's supported rationally here, here, and here. And I think you'll get more of that with Callaway, and I'm looking forward to that. So uh, I'm going give to it, give it five minutes because we should probably at this point move on to, uh, to the numbers uh, that we would like to cover. But um, when it comes to Callaway uh, and what you were saying, and, and it's uh, ironically, at bat of MLB just pulled up as we, I was about to say something about uh, Mickey Callaway. I got an alert from Mickey from from at bat the, the Mets thing, and it says adding skipper Mickey Callaway and bringing back Jay Bruce helps, but a Mets rebound is, oh, jeez, Mike, uh, mostly about the mound, Richard Justice writes, and that's something that plenty of people on this podcast have brought up, is that they seem to be going with pitching. Adding skipper Mickey Calloway helps, and, uh, uh, as well as Jay Bruce, but the Mets rebound is all about the pitcher's mound, and wherever I was going to go from there, Mike, let's start Let's start. I, I had planned on something else until that alert came up right as as we ended, uh, uh, you know, our last part. So before we move on to the numbers, Mike, go from there. Well, it clearly is about the pitching, uh, and I, I think we can look forward to more stationary baseball. I'm not sure how much of a dynamic Mickey Cowley is going to add, offensively speaking. Uh, and, and therein lies the numbers again. So some computers spitting out that, you know, stolen bases and bunts and et cetera, et cetera, bad ideas. Uh, so I, I'm not sure what they're going to do. I'm not sure what the, their direction out, aside from pitching, I'm not even sure what their direction is. Uh, I don't like the fact that they play Conforto out of position. And then you look around, Roma Flores, Dominic Smith, the way they're treating him now with the acquisition of Adrian Gonzalez. You look back on Duda. uh, All these guys played out of position. And then if you want to throw in some more names like Ciccini and guys like that, all guys that Sandy Alderson drafted, since he's been here and took over in 2011. Uh, the fact that Omar Minaya is back tells me that perhaps Sandy Olsen had an epiphany that his drafting and, and that of Paul DePodesta, uh essentially sucked. And everybody that Omar Minaya drafted were way much better than anything uh Sandy or Team Sandy brought in. So I find it interesting that Omar's back, uh, perhaps to, you know, address the farm needs. But, you know, 
Cabrera playing third. Why don't they give the job to Rivera at second base? Uh, so I, I don't know what their direction is. And perhaps a lot of this has to do with what Sandy Alderson himself said, that uh, there just isn't a lot of talent in the system. Now they have Peter Alonzo, a first baseman, at Binghamton, I think, this year, and a third baseman, Thompson. His first name escapes me at the moment. Those are the only two prospects that I'm aware of outside of uh, perhaps Wilma Bussera, and, and that goes back to the Ari Dickey trade and the bounty that we, you know, supposedly acquired from Toronto. But that, that, that's where my, my, my gig is. I don't know what they're trying to do anymore. Clearly everything's uh, built around pitching, 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 pitching. If they fail, it's because of the pitching. If they succeed, it's going to be because of the pitching. So, as you say, Sam, interchangeable parts, you know, I'm not a big fan of that. Uh, I, I just think this is – it's turned into somewhat of a hodgepodge, you know. I've gone long on. I've gone on long enough there. Greg, second base, T.J. Rivera, Jose Reyes, somebody from outside the organization. Where are you on that? Uh, you know, if Harrison somehow becomes a Met, I think that's your answer. Um, TJ, I don't know if he'll be ready by opening day. I forget exactly uh, what I had read as his timetable. Um, Jose Reyes, I would love to have back just because I still love Jose Reyes, but I'm not sure where he fits into all of this. Um, you know, no, I, I think what we've reminded ourselves is that this is sort of an incomplete picture um, on January 16th and not, not as filled in as it would be in other years. So, um, you know, I've, again, I've, I've always liked Harrison. I, I haven't minded the fact that he's beat up on the Mets sometimes. Uh, I remember one game in particular in 2014 where he kind of ducked and dodged along the base pass. Probably should have been called out just relieving the baseline, but, um, you know, that kind of player is a lot of fun to have and a, and a big help. So if, if that's our second baseman, I don't know, you know, they can make it happen. Fantastic. Um, I, you know, TJ Rivera hasn't done anything to, uh, to not earn a long look though, uh, depending on his health. So, you know, we're, we're what, within the 30 day range of, uh, of pitchers and catchers and uh, anxious position players. We've had uh, images floating forth uh, from Florida of several of the guys, uh, Cespedes, Lagares, Flores, and and young Rosario all working out. So, uh, you know, enough talk from people like us. Let's get some action going. Exactly. Rich, Josh Harrison would say not only to Josh Harrison that – he's going to a winner, but would say to the fan base, we're going for a winner. What's your thoughts on that? I think, I, I, I believe you said something earlier. That's a good point. He did say that. He said that um, in being traded, he wants to go to a winner. And, and, you know, there is a psychological benefit to that. You know, if the Mets, if he accepts a trade to the Mets, that's basically, or, you know, I don't, I don't think he has a, a limited no trade or any kind of a no trade, but if he gets traded to the Mets, I think that sends a decent message, you know, to the fan base that um, that we don't want out on a guy who wanted to be on a winning team, and and we feel we're a good fit because that's our plan as well. And so, 
you know, he'll be happy here and all of that. So while it's a subtle thing, it's not a bad thing to acquire a guy who has made that statement. It shows where, you're, where you are as an organization as well. And actually, it shows you that you are in the, moving in the other direction as the Pirates. And the Pirates are clearly tearing it down. And if you become a receiver of one of their pieces, you're now, quote-unquote, a buyer, you know, as opposed to a seller. And I, and I think that also sends a good message to the fans. And not to mention, I, you know, as we've talked about for the last, for, for the last you know, hour and 40 minutes, you know, on and off, Harrison's a great fit for this team. He plays a position that they need. He could bat at the top of the lineup, and he's versatile. And he's also under team control. I think he has team options for – he has contract this year and team options for the next two. So you put all of that together, it seems like a, a good fit if you can make the trade work. Do you trade Juan Ligares? That's a tough one because I agree with Mike. As much as I wanted Bruce back, my concern is playing Conforto in center field because I've, I've never been a fan of playing guys out of position. And, and although Conforto has looked good in limited time in center field, he's not a center fielder. And I wonder if that messes with his head. Because, let's face it, you know, he's in there for his bat. So um, I hope it doesn't mess with him. So what would the plan be if you keep a Ligaris? Ligaris becomes your late-inning defensive replacement. You slide Conforto to right, take Bruce out of the game, perhaps. But is that valuable enough? Is it mission critical to keep Ligaris for that? Or if he becomes the piece that the Pirates want to replace McCutcheon in center field, do you make that deal? I don't know. It's a tough call. I have to think I would. It's a real tough call, and I'm going to start uh, at the top, Greg. Uh, Juan Ligaris. What? I mean, so I remember uh, there was a photo posted today, and at some point today uh, somebody said, hey, Juan Ligaris looks jacked, but what about his eye? That's what I'm more concerned about. I'm less concerned about how jacked Juan Ligaris looks, and I'm more concerned about <laughs> – how much of a better hitter he might be. So, Greg, what do you do about Juan Ligaris? Uh, yeah, it's kind of in that uh, realm of Flores and Darno in my mind. Again, a uh, young up-and-comer who suddenly has, you know, five or so years under his belt, and yet we never really feel that we've gotten the entire Juan Ligaris experience that maybe there's something more and you know, the work he's been doing in this off season may be the key to that because, uh, you know, you just want to see him run down fly balls and not strike out. And we know he does one of them really well. Um, you know, I remember when we, we got our first prolonged exposure in about two years to Juan late last year when essentially they had nobody else to play in center field. So they finally said, you know, go ahead. And, you know, the, the guy he made me think of, uh, or the situation he made me think of, was that of Rafael Santana, shortstop on your 1986 world champion Mets, who, and again, Rafael Santana's on, not two shortstops with Juan, Juan Lagares is to center fielders. I mean, Juan Lagares is a, you know, to my mind, you know, all-time best defensive center fielder the Mets have ever had, and that's saying something. But... You know, you put Santana out there, and you said we we don't care that he doesn't hit that much because he gets everything, and we've got guys who can hit. And I found myself thinking, God, wouldn't it be great to just let Ligaris go out there 
be a center fielder and whatever he hits is fine, but it doesn't really work that way. Um, the Mets are not in the position to carry a glove and a light bat uh, from their center fielder really anywhere on on the diamond. So one, once more, we're in kind of put up or, you know, listen to offers territory, shall we say. Um, you know, it's, it's funny, when, when he kind of emerged as the... Uh, the healthy version of Matt Dendecker, speaking of, of Mets of uh, recent distant past, uh, you know, we couldn't get enough of Juan Lagares. And it was, why isn't Terry playing Juan Lagares more? And, you know, what, which year is he eligible for the Hall of Fame? Because clearly Juan Lagares is going to Cooperstown. And now he's sort of in that, <laughs> if not exactly fringe area, uh, so, so, sort of on on the line. I think in, the, in a lot of our minds, um, but you know, you you, you want to believe that he has found or you know will have found by uh, the time spring training rolls around, whatever it is that that makes a launch angle desirable and productive, and all those things we talk about, because you know that that is not the kind of glove I, I think that you give away, you know, w- without a second thought, and you know we we can all kind of. Stew defense until balls start falling in, and uh, you know I'd love to see Lagares become a more complete player. I don't think any of us wouldn't. No, we certainly would. Um, you just, you just, you know, you know that you would swing at the same pitch, <laughs> and and yet, like you criticize them. You criticize him for swinging at that pitch, but what are what are you supposed to do? What is he supposed to do? And Mike, Juan Lagares, what do you do? He he falls into the same group as those other as those other guys I mentioned. Uh, we've never given some of these guys a fair shake. You know, their time has always been interrupted by an acquisition, by an injury. Uh, flavor of the day, Terry Collins, for whatever reason, they've, you know, failed to get fair shakes. And uh, good quality time, i.e. a full season. And Rich makes a a very good point about perhaps you need to keep him around uh, as a defensive replacement for all three positions, as a matter of fact. Why not? Uh, but everyone's tradable. I mean, if the deal is right, you pull the trigger. Absolutely, without a doubt. So he's definitely tradable. I would definitely package him. Uh, but is he useful? Yeah. Uh, it's unfortunate that, you know, him, uh, Wilma Flores in particular, uh, you know, never got a fair shake because I actually – Still think Wilma Flores can be a decent third baseman, uh, a, a, a very good uh, slugging-wise major league third baseman. Uh, look how they treated Duda, uh, and these are all the guys that you know came in and out. You know, Duda was capped out into the outfield until they settled him at first base. And, and there's more players that description that I'm just not bringing up. Uh, so Lagares, if the deal is right, you pull the trigger. But you know, he is what he is, and without a real chance, look, look, look around at how other teams treat 
uh, said prospects. You know, they give them a full season. Here, you're lucky if you get, you know, four consecutive weeks before somebody's changing up the plan. How many years have Lagares and Flores and some of these guys been here and we still don't know much about them? And here we are. This goes back to my point. Here we are. We're spinning our wheels in the mud. Well, I would say with um, uh, with Juan Lagares, it's tough because he, he really ha- – I really can't separate whether or not Terry Collins is responsible for what I what I've seen from Ter- from uh, Juan Lagares uh, from not from Terry Lagares because that's maybe what I was about to say, but uh, you know I I know that Juan Lagares should have gotten his fair chance. You make a point about everybody should have gotten their fair chance, um, but absolutely, do I deplete the outfield depth? For the infield and Josh Harrison? Yes. Yes, I do. Because Josh Harrison has been through the ringer a few times with the Pirates. They might not have gotten that far, but when you're with a franchise that hasn't made it for 20 years and then makes it a few times in a row and unfortunately doesn't make it too far, you've still been through the ringer, and he might be exactly what we need at second base even more than Neil Walker, who has been through the ringer with the Pirates, as we know. Um, I'm not about, right now, I would rather bring Josh Harrison as the ex-Pirate in, as opposed to Neil Walker as the ex-Met and ex-Pirate, although if he came in, he wouldn't be an ex-Met, but you get my drift. So, um, having said that, I think, guys, we could go on for another hour with all of that <laughs> that we've all been talking about. So as it being the inaugural podcast, I will take a democratic vote as to whether we should move on to number one. Greg, is it a yay or a nay? Um, I, number one is, is the first number and this is the first podcast. If you're so inclined, um, it's up to you, man. Well, you know, uh, I, I like those apples. Rich, you like those apples? I do like those apples. How do you like them apples, Mike? Apples are good. Ultimate Mets database number one. I'm going to list it all before we get started with anything, and I will not be the first one to talk about number one, that is for sure. So I'm only the one to list everything. Number one, and... You know what? Before we talk about number one, let's talk about number zero. Number zero, zero, number zero. Uh, Greg, what number does Mr. Met wear? He is Mr. Double Zero. He is Mr. Double Zero. So, Greg, Mr. Met, before we get started, I think, since we'll, we, unless we come back around to, um, once we come back around to episode 100, we will talk about Mr. Met, but I think it is appropriate before we start the number to talk about Mr. Matt. Here, here. Mr. Mr. Matt always has a head in the game. <laughs> He's got good hands. <laughs> He's not much of a clubhouse chatter guy, from what I can tell. Um, he's loyal. 
he it, it's it's as if he and the team share an identity, and you don't get that every day in this era of player movements. So you know, due respect to Tony Clark, um, who also wore <laughs> yeah. double zero for a couple of months until Tony Clark. It should be noted uh, today the um, Major League Players Association head uh, looked around and said, you know what, I can't have Mr. Mets' number, and he switched to 52. So, um, you know, uh, I think Mr. Mets, as I recall, I think he he sort of was uh, kind of uh, the wisp of the wind in the late 90s, uh, changing uh, every year. Um, 97, 98, 99, he wore them, maybe not 99, come to think of it, <laughs> he might not have worn Turk's number, but I, I think that's, that was the uh, the way he went, but eventually, uh, maybe I think of the Bat Boys, it's getting late, uh, double zero, uh, <laughs> Mr. Met, the all-timer, and I guess the last thing I have to say about Mr. Met is uh, he will always be double zero in our hearts, but as he said with one finger last year, uh, he will also always be number one in our hearts. That's a good point. Speaking of number one, here we go. Richie asked, uh, let's start over. Number one, Richie Ashburn, Cliff Cook, Duke Carmel, Charlie Smith, Ed Brazard, Brazud, Brazud. Jerry Bushick, Kevin Collins, Bobby Field, Lute Barnes, Lute Bobby File, Lute Barnes, Gene Klein, Leo Foster, Mr. Bobby Valentine, Sergio Ferrer, Mookie Wilson, Lou Thornton, Chuck Carr, Mr. Vince Coleman, Tony Fernandez, Kevin Baez, who was also a uh, blogger on Rising Apple, I should mention. Fernando Vina, Ricky Otero, Lance Johnson twice, Mookie Wilson, of course, again. Mr. Mookie Wilson, I should add. Essex Snaid, Anderson Hernandez, Louis Castillo, who will never get a mister out of my book. Another mister, Mookie Wilson. Giordani Valdespin, Chris Young, Daryl Siciliani, Eric Young, Justin Ruggiano, and you know what? I'm going to go with it, Mr. Ahmed Rosario. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, that is the number one list. Greg, I will start with you before we we move on any further. Well, look who's number one, as uh, the scoreboard said the night the Mets first moved into first place in 1969, and uh, you've looked at all of them. Uh, I think uh, consensus would uh, have it as that is Mookie Wilson's number. And (laughs) as long as Mookie uh, was around to wear it, uh, as Lance Johnson noted, (coughs) excuse me, um, nobody else really has a claim on it in that history. The the reason you found yourself with... uh, Two Lance Johnsons is very telling. Uh, Johnson had the number. They brought Mookie in uh, for his induction into the Mets Hall of Fame on September 1st, 1996. And Lance, for a day, 
switched to number 51, saying nobody else in Shea Stadium could be wearing number one while Mookie is here. And then the next day, uh, Lance, you know, moved back to uh, to number one. Uh, eventually, Mookie came back to coach and got number one. Um, honestly, Mookie Wilson, uh, you know, 10 seasons a Met, uh, World Series hero. I don't think that needs much elaboration. And Lance Johnson, one of the you know singular seasons in Met history, 1996, 21 triple, 227 base hits. They are the the standard for excellence in number one. And when Ahmed Rosario came up last year and, and took on number one, with due respect to Richie Ashburn, who had the uh, the fine inaugural season uh, and then retired, there's really no nothing stopping Ahmed Rosario from being in the top three or four of Mets to ever have worn number one. Uh, again, the number of the guys you, you ran down, uh, you know, had, had their moments in Met history, as, as we've established uh, tonight. A lot of guys have their moments in Met history. Uh, Bobby File uh, stands out because he, he was a contributor to the 69 club, unfortunately uh, left off the World Series roster, his glove made it to the World Series. The Secret Service borrowed his glove when when uh, the First Lady of the United States, uh, Pat Nixon, attended a World Series game in Baltimore, and they wanted to uh, protect her from foul balls. So um, that is his role in uh, the 1969 World Series, unfortunately. Bobby Valentine wore one as a player, uh, better known uh, as number two as a manager. Essex Sneed gave me a great uh, memory Although he was not wearing number one that night, so uh, it doesn't really matter because he didn't, he didn't wear number one in 2002. But he did hit a walk-off home run at Chase Stadium in the otherwise depressing uh, month of September '92. I happened to be there for, and uh, little Sergio Ferrer. I'll, I'll close with him in, in terms of uh, the hodgepodge here. Uh, little Sergio Ferrer went, I believe, over seven in 1979, but he almost got a base hit in the 10-run inning that established a Met record that was uh, tied and later broken uh, in uh, June of 79. And the reason this sticks with me is Ray Knight was playing third for Cincinnati, had to make a diving stop. And Steve Albert, uh, who was an announcer for a few years after Lindsey Nelson, said, uh, even little Sergio Ferrer is going to get a base hit, but he didn't, and that became uh, his offer for the year. So, <laughs> you know, what one is usually given to your speedy guy. I, I don't think there's a slugger here by nature who ever got number one. I mean, some of them get lucky. Uh, Giordani Valdespin during his stormy tenure uh, hit a bunch of pinch hit home runs. Uh, Chris Young was what about Kevin Collins? Thinking about it, Kevin Collins Ke- in '69, right? Kevin, well, Kevin Collins brought you Don Clendenin was part of that deal. Kevin Collins was was one of the was part of the youth movement. You know what, Kevin Collins, if Kevin Collins were a Met in this era, he'd still be here. They wouldn't have traded him for Don Clendenin. You know, instead, he'd be entering his sixth or seventh year, a la Lagares and Flores and Darno, and we'd be saying, "Gee, guys, is Kevin Collins ever going to be any good?" But um, by 1969, <laughs> uh, Kevin Collins, I think he he may be in the one home run club. He may have had a couple. I, I shouldn't say, but um, you know he he was came up, I believe, as a teenager in '65 when the Mets were uh, basically uh, giving everybody a shot. Um, you know, was I, I imagine he he got a little share of the World Series money, but he was with the Montreal Expos. 
by the time that all went down. Um, I'll throw in one more here. Uh, Duke Carmel, what is his significance? Duke Carmel was the first ex-Met to become a Yankee, as opposed to the way it had been working for the <laughs> first few years, which was you know, George Weiss and Casey Stengel picking up guys like Gene Woodling and saying, well, let's see if we have anything left in the guys we remember from the 50s. Uh, Duke Carmel was a sign that the Yankee dynasty was over because now they were trolling for ex-Mets. So uh, it's an interesting breed. Um, some of the more infamous characters, like uh, you mentioned, you know, Val, Val Despin, who at least gave us some nice moments. Vince Coleman wore one. Um, Luis Castillo, like you said, wore one. So um, sometimes it's just, uh, hey, here comes a guy who's uh, a real pepper pot. Let's put it on him and hope for the best. And, and since he has one of the more hard-to-pronounce names in uh, Mets history, uh, Eddie Brasseau actually uh, set a record that stood for a long time. He hit 10 home runs as the everyday shortstop, not all of them as the shortstop that year, but he held until Kevin Elster came along. Uh, I think Elster just tied it, the most home runs as a shortstop. It wasn't until Jose Reyes uh, broke out in, in uh, 2006. And I think Eddie Brasseau was definitively erased from the Met record book. And Eddie Brasseau, one of the, you know, when we say that the Mets stocked their team with old Dodgers and Giants at the beginning, that's not really true because it was all Dodgers for the most part. And the only two New York Giants <laughs> who played for the Mets were, of course, Willie Mays, who came much later, and Eddie Brasseau, who is one of the surviving. Uh, now, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hate myself if I got this wrong. I think Eddie Brazil is one of the surviving 20 or so Giants from the New York uh, Giants. Um, forgive me if, if uh, I'm wrong on that. From from what but, year? So, so did he win a uh, like 50, 56, 57. 54? I mean, basically, uh, I think other than Willie Mays, I don't necessarily know there's anybody left from 51. And I think Antonelli is still around. Uh, our friend Gary. You make a, you make a point that it was mostly Dodgers. Those... Uh, those um, Gary Mintz regularly sends out those lists of the players who are still with us. And to be fair, you know, a lot of those guys just got in at the end in 56, 57. Brissou was one of them. But uh, for one year, he was, as Bud Harrelson was kind of getting his sea legs, he had a couple of, uh, of tryouts, uh, and Roy McMillan's uh, days were over. Uh, Brissou held down the fort in 66, the first year the Mets uh, didn't lose 100 games. And, uh, didn't uh, finish in last place. So, um, you know, th this is Mookie Wilson's uh, brigade, though. And, you know, Ahmed Rosario gave us a little hope uh, last year and certainly comes highly recommended uh, that he will perhaps reestablish number one as not just a museum piece under the name of Mookie Wilson, but as that kind of dynamic player. And, uh, boy, let's hope so. Let's hope so. Um, Rich? Justin Ruggiano, one of those names at this point. You know, for a second you thought he might be part of that stretch. And it was very early on. I mean, you know what? I kind of had hope as that giant series was going on. But at the same time, I mean, everything fell into place in 2016 again. And, and that was an exciting time. Justin Ruggiano kind of became one of those names. He did. 
You know, what I remember is um, he had a grand slam off of Bumgarner in a game in San Francisco, right when the Mets were starting that run, which, you know, tying our entire podcast together came after, you know, Greg mentioned that afternoon game where they lost 9 nothing to Diamondbacks. Terry goes in the, the clubhouse during the presser and says, you know, if you don't want to play, there are people in Vegas love to be here, all that stuff. Mets then um, a couple days later go on, the, they play the Padres over that weekend, and they go on the West Coast. They play the Giants in San Francisco, and actually, in a game they ended up losing, Rogiano, it's a grand slam off of Bumgarner, very early in the game, might have been the second or third inning. So remember that. And then if you remember, they go to St. Louis after San Francisco. Ruggiano hits a home run in the first game of that series, which was a critical game, and they won it. Um, and then he gets hurt. Then he then he goes down, just like, you know, typical Met, right? Uh, goes down getting hurt. So he had a, um, a very brief tenure with the Mets, but a couple of interesting hits. You know, he, he, he had a couple of good things. He's a player I always liked when he was with the Marlins. Um, you know, kind of a solid guy. You know, I don't know why I think of this, Greg and Mike, but I think of like a Del Luncer, like a right-handed hitting Del Luncer. Never the greatest player in baseball, but a solid, solid, fundamentally good player. Um, so, yeah, Ruggiano would be one. Um, the other one, you know, it, it's Mookie's number, and there's not much more to say about Mookie. Actually, I will say one thing. Uh, my favorite Christmas present is my daughter gave me a frame signed picture of the ball going under Buckner's legs with Mookie and Buckner in the picture. Um, and it's, you know, certified authentic. So that's pretty cool. So Mookie. Um, but then I'll, I'll leave with this, and I'll, I'll end with Vince Coleman. So, you know, Mookie is the guy, the iconic Met. I think that's the moment in Mets franchise history. You could argue that point, but the ball going through Buckner's legs is probably the most iconic moment in Mets history, in my opinion, you know, the miracles and all that stuff, and that certainly was a miracle. Um, So Mookie's responsible for that. Then if you go to the other side of the coin, you know, Vince Coleman was brought in as a mercenary. Um, I was for it when they signed him because, like Mike, you know, I like the speed game, and I thought Coleman would bring an element they needed. But you want to talk about something that was you know, the best laid plans of mice and men. I mean, this thing clearly went awry when he was squirting bleach and just, um, you know, it just <laughs> it couldn't have gone worse. So you have one end of the spectrum with Mookie, other end with Vince Coleman, and other bit players like you know, Greg mentioned, Ferrer and uh, – Tony Fernandez, so I loved it when they got him from Toronto, but he did nothing as a Met. Um, so you have other guys along the way, but I would say I'll go to two ends of the spectrum with Mookie and Coleman. Mike, where do you want to go? Well, let's take it from the top, uh, Ahmed Rosario. I'm looking forward, you know, assuming he stays healthy, I'm looking forward, you know, to a full season. Uh, which would be refreshing uh, based on what I was saying before. Give this guy a full season. Let's see what he's got. Uh, Richie Ashburn, an original man. He's got a statue. I was Philly. about to ask you about that. The Mets don't have any statues, but Richie Ashburn has a statue in Philly. So, you know, he was an original man. you got to mention him. He's a Hall of Famer. Uh, like Rich said, this is definitely Mookie Wilson's number. And, uh, oh, Tony Fernandez, you know, uh, one of the top shortstops of that time, all of a sudden he came to the Mets in 93 and forgot how to play baseball and then discovered uh, his career again upon leaving. 
Uh, funny how that works. And Lance Johnson, man, one of the, I, he's easily <laughs> one of my top ten Met acquisitions of all time. Lance Johnson, that's you, yeah. you have nothing, uh, you have nothing else to Klein. say. Uh, let me throw in Gene Klein as well. You know, he was one of those guys. Uh, there was always he, he, I called him uh, a pack a day because he was in every base pack of baseball cards <laughs> I bought back in those days. So you would wind up with like one Tom Seaver and twenty five Gene Kleins at the end of the season. So so Greg, what did Richie Ashburn mean to the sixty two Mets? You know, like like he said, there's a statue of him in Philadelphia and there would never be a statue unless the Mets wanted to be that ironic and brazen. <laughs> there would never be a well, statue you... of Richie Ashburn in, in uh, uh Flushing. But well, well talk about Richie Ashburn. Well, Richie Ashburn is, you know, an icon in Philadelphia long before the Mets were invented. So he ought to have a statue there uh, as teams will sometimes lose their minds and try to commemorate a player uh, properly. But, um, you know, Richie Ashburn was literally, literally the most valuable player on the worst team in baseball history. Uh, He was voted that honor by the writers who covered the team in 1962. Uh, the Mets' first all-star selection hit 306 on – played more right field than center field uh, because his legs weren't really there anymore. But really, you could argue that his greatest contribution was kind of pumping up the legend of number two on the 62 Mets, marvelous Marv Throneberry, who I think you want you want to go for irony – uh, and just the soul of the team. You want to have a, a statue besides uh, one for uh, the, the the usual suspect, shall we say, who we always talk about. Yes. Uh, Marf Roneberry yes. would be an excellent. This is a, a friend of mine that had this idea. Uh, Marf Roneberry, uh, you want to put a statue outside or somewhere in City Field, maybe you'll be facing the wrong way. <coughs> just in honor oh, of the oh, But oh, uh, R- Richie Ashburn, uh, you know, basically – you know, gave the writers the idea that Mar- Marv Thornberry was marvelous, that he was more than simply a uh, guy who hit home runs and struck out and made errors, that he kind of helped you know, really seed the legend. And um, just, you know, we, we, t- we talk about, you know, clubhouse leaders uh, th- through time. In a way, Richie Ashburn was, was the first guy uh, to kind of uh, help guide the Mets. Again, he couldn't guide them to many wins, because the talent wasn't there. Again, you, you take that 62-met roster and maybe you put it – take take the, the most experience of that roster and set it back six or seven years. You probably have a really good team. Unfortunately, that was, you know, not the, the idea of an expansion team. But, uh, you know, Richie led the way. And he had one year as part of the worst team in baseball history, and he had enough. He uh, – went directly to the broadcast booth in Philadelphia where, like I said, he had established his Hall of Fame credentials that would eventually be recognized by the Veterans Committee. And for the next, gosh, 35 seasons, he was a broadcaster on Phillies games and, you know, sadly met his end in a hotel room in Manhattan, ironically, when the Phillies weren't in town to play the Mets. His, you know, he, he worked right to the bitter end um, of his life. Uh, or, you know, it became the bitter end, unfortunately. But, 
you know, he got a lot of mileage out of his years on the Mets. Uh, he was always spoken of highly by those who knew him. Uh, certainly Ralph and Bob and Lindsay love to tell Richie Ashburn stories. So, you know, one got off to a good start when they gave it to him. Again, Cliff Cook uh, did not do much for it. Uh, Charlie Smith uh, actually hit about tw- – I think Charlie Smith hit the most home runs by any Met between Frank Thomas and Tommy Agee. Uh, which sounds like you're really slicing and dicing something there, but the Mets didn't hit a lot of home runs in the 60s. So, you know, when, when you go back to those early years, it was basically Richie Ashburn and waiting for Mookie Wilson to come along and give one a, a little oomph. Uh, I'll throw in one, one more thought on Gene Kleins. Uh, Gene Kleins had been a Pittsburgh Pirate, much as Josh Harrison is, and looked to me, uh, despite him showing up in in every uh, pack of cards that Mike bought, uh, I thought, like, we're going to get this speedy guy. We got Kleins. We got Dell Unser. This is going to be a fantastic center field platoon in 1975. And uh, that was about half true because Unser had a terrific season. Kleins, as the phrase goes, not so much, and he was off to Texas after that first year. But... Um, you know, again, kind of keep coming back to the, the ideal one is a guy, uh, you slap it on his back, you tell him, like, why don't you bunt and get on base and try to steal second? And, uh, you know, that was part of Mookie Wilson's game, part of Lance Johnson's game. Uh, you know, they certainly could hit into the gaps and run all day. And, um, you know, in his prime, that's what Richie Ashburn did in Philadelphia and Chicago, and as much as he possibly could in the polo grounds. So, uh, you know. But, but I, again, I, I reiterate, Ahmed Rosario, with a halfway decent couple of years, is going to be no less than the fourth greatest one in Mets history immediately. So, you know, <laughs> the, uh, the, the stage is set, and uh, let, us, let us ride the Rosario speed wagon to uh, bigger and better things. Rosario Speedwagon sounds a lot like REO Speedwagon, but let's not even go down that road right now. Um, Rich, I'm a lot of things that Greg just said. There's specifically the Marv Throneberry part that just kind of makes me sad, and it's not Marv Throneberry specifically. It's just as a as a Met fan. As somebody who's followed this franchise, as somebody who has kind of observed them as a screenwriter kind of mind, as as somebody who's just, like, looking for the story, it would just be so unbelievable. And it almost makes me cry. It would be so unbelievable if we had owners who understood this franchise enough to build not only a statue for Tom Seaver, not only a statue for Joan Payson, but round it out to understand this franchise enough that you make a statue for Marv Throneberry. And I'm, it's not just like the Wilpons. You can't specifically talk about the Wilpons because another ownership might not appreciate it either. But to have somebody who had enough money to also understand what this meant, what this means, what being a Mets fan is, and have those three rounded out, as well as Mike Piazza, of course. You know, 
it's sad. It's sad to me. Coming all the way back to what Mike spoke about earlier. It is. And I think, you know, the Mets have a history. It's not the Yankees' history, but they have some really good moments. They've done some great things. They've entertained their fans and all of that over the years. And, And the fact of being the little brother to the Yankees and all of that stuff, which is something I've never really bought into because factually I've seen many polls of the, especially the New York city and and the boroughs and um, that there are just as many Mets fans as Yankee fans. So being this little brother thing in terms of accomplishment, sure. The the franchise is not nearly as accomplished, but it's not like the Jets and Giants. The Mets have just as many fans as the Yankees do. And and that's, I, again, that's a statistic, at least in the city itself. So moving on from that, but they're not helping themselves. Like, in other words, they're not celebrating their history. They're not celebrating their guys. And that sort of perpetuates this idea that they aren't as important, if you know what I mean. You know what I mean? They're not celebrating their history. They're not celebrating Tom Seaver. They're not celebrating Joan Payson. Um, and I'll throw another name at you. If we're talking about statues, I want a statue of Rusty Staub because this guy is a philanthropist on top of being a great Met. He is an incredible philanthropist. What he does for fallen New York City firefighters and police officers and all of that stuff. Um, He's done things for the homeless, you know, feeding the homeless. In addition to playing on basically one arm in the 73, you know, postseason, as Greg, Mike, and I remember, um, you know, the guy's an absolute warrior. He's a good human being. And why not celebrate that guy? I mean, seriously. You know, in addition to Seaver, in addition to pace and you know and other people um so yeah i mean the mets to your point sam about understanding they're not as accomplished as the yankees okay but they have things that they can celebrate and they don't do it which further perpetuates not being as accomplished as the yankees if you know what i mean it just it just they don't help themselves and it's coming back around to what we mentioned and i don't think we really delved into too much earlier was what was mentioned about Fred Wilpon. And what was mentioned about Fred Wilpon in this offseason was him still seeing, you know, like Giancarlo Stanton traded to the Yankees and saying, it's not sustainable. It's just not sustainable. And that's the voice I hear when I I read that uh, there. And, Mike, we'll start with you, and, and we'll really go around, I think, with this with Fred Wilpon and, and just, you know, may, not, you know, having a modern mind or not having a modern mind and what that means in terms of Fred Wilpon. But, but you know, that's the voice I hear when, when it's like, it's not sustainable. And there was the specific, the specific person who quoted Fred Wilpon said, but the Yankees keep proving it is. So, Mike, wherever you <laughs> want to go, I'm not sure if you've read that specific. Yeah, I'm aware, what I'm, I'm talking aware he about. said that. Uh, that just goes to show he's got his head buried in the sand. Uh, he's really out of touch. Uh, he's a you know, it's unfortunate. It really is because he's a local guy. He's a Brooklyn guy. He grew up playing baseball. He knows baseball. He knows fishing. Uh, it's just unfortunate for us as Met fans that he's a Dodger fan and, and he built a shrine to them. Uh, you know, the guy who probably would have uh, done justice this organization was Eddie Cranepool. 
Uh, he originally wanted to buy the Mets from uh, Linda de Roulet and 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 Joan Payson's widow. Uh, and this is on Ed Cranepool's uh, uh, favor page that uh, he he made a bid, but at the same time, he told that to me personally. Okay, there you go. Uh, and, and, you know, Fred Wilpon and, and Saul Katz, they came up with this uh, great idea to make a bid on the Mets. And between the two of them, they only put up uh, 600 and change each, 600,000 and change each to secure the bid. Bill didn't have anybody, you know, to put the bill on the rest of it. It was the owner of the Islanders at that time who put them in touch with Nelson Doubleday. And that's how they pulled it off. And Nelson Doubleday apparently wasn't really aware of the clauses in their deal that made Fred Wilpon the managing partner since day one. And on and on and on and on and on. So, you know, on his way out, Nelson Doubleday said, Fred Wilpon is going to run the Mets into the ground. And they had a very contentious court battle over the, over the sale price of the Mets. And when they finally decided on a price, and Fred had to come up with Nelson's money, that's really when the fans got first wind of Madoff as somebody who personally with the Wilpons because that's how he financed the check that he needed to fork over for double days half of half stake of the team. So, you know, the prophecy is fulfilling itself right before our very eyes. He has run his team into the ground along with all the mistakes that he's committed against this fan base. That just makes, you know, that's just salt in our wound, opening up City Field without a Hall of Fame. It's nonsense. Nonsense. Uh, little details like that shouldn't have failed. But like I said, he grew up in the Dodger thing. Such misguidedness, uh, though. And, and like, it, it's just overall, you see the poor decisions being made. That there's not somebody they're saying to these people, hey, that's it. It's a family enterprise. It's a family enterprise. There is nobody above them. It's Fred. It's Saul who's silent. And then not above Jeff. them. Not above them. Who around them. Around them. I'm not talking that's about it. above them. I'm talking they about around them. They don't have the wherewithal to like do they, that. They never have. And, but that's the smartest thing they ever did. Bringing Frank Cashin. The smartest thing they ever did was bringing Frank Cashin. It was Frank Cashin who stopped this organization with Joe McLevain. But Doubleday was there at the time. And, like, how much of that wasn't Frank? Frank, uh, Fred Wilpon, what, what, had like a percentage? One percentage at the time? At the very best, Doubleday brought balance. At the very best, Doubleday brought balance. But Wilpon contractually was always the managing partner. It's in the New York and, Times and repeatedly. 
when 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 the major league baseball owners wanted to out save Vincent, Nelson Doubleday threatened to sell his portion of the team. And that's when we found out about that clause in the print. Because he had to yeah. give Wilf Red Wilpon right of first option. He couldn't go out on the market and sell it. That's when we really figured that out. It's been Wilpon's team since the very beginning. Nelson Doubleday brought balance. And the better baseball acumen left this organization when he left. And he called Jeff Wilpon a pharaoh. Look at him in his box. He stands there like a little pharaoh, and he thinks he's going to be a, a baseball man. Quote, unquote, out of Nelson Doubleday's mouth. That's where well, we are. The guys, prophecy has been fulfilled. We had to say goodbye to Rich. We 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 had to say goodbye to Rich, and I want to thank Rich Sprago for for joining us on this uh, this first podcast. And it's just you know this is what they do, this is what they do. They're very, uh, they're they're jaded. They're very jaded. As as the nice as, as you can fulfilled. hear, you hear you hear about Fred Wilpon and how nice he can be. My uncles met him. He's a Brooklyn boy, like we say. But there's something missing. And hopefully one day, and hopefully we all live to see it, somebody will take over this team. Because eventually, like, we're talking about billions of dollars that's on the table. And the way it's going, and and Greg, I I think we'll round out to kind of 2001, because that's what we're normally supposed to do. But with uh, with with Fred Wilpon, like I think, hopefully one day it'll come to the point that they will want billions of dollars at their disposal. Um, I, I am going to borrow a page from Mickey Mantle, a Yankee, and uh, after after Casey Stengel gave a uh, most memorable and eloquent uh, testimony uh, to the United States Senate about baseball's antitrust exemption. And uh, just say that uh, my, my, my views are pretty much the same as Mike's, and leave it there. Um, <laughs> I think he pretty much nailed the uh, the situation where ownership yeah. is concerned. So um, you know, let's you know so, somehow through this ownership, they've managed to kind of come back around a couple of times and give us winners. Uh, whether because they did something or in spite of what they did. And uh, right now, that is what I, as a fan, hope for. Uh, that somehow they, which is not really ideal. <laughs> I want to say, gee, I, I hope that somehow, despite the, the odds being stacked against us, uh, you know, every now and then things work out. But that seems to be the path we're on. So maybe someday those those billions will appeal to them and this idea that they are the uh, caretakers of the legacy of New York baseball and the National League. Uh, it'll make maybe uh, when when Jeff is running the show, uh, he won't have the same way of looking at it that Fred did. But uh, there's not a lot to be inspired by necessarily. But again, it's a couple of times we've gotten lucky. And but I'm gonna I'm gonna let uh, Mike's uh, impassioned uh, assessment uh, 
of the historical nature of this stand for, for, for me too. Well, Greg, I will say that there's something that you say in the, the uh, thing that I'm editing currently. Uh, you say at the end, sometimes you go back on it. Uh, maybe this will happen. Maybe that will happen. But you got to believe. And that's what it all comes down to. And normally at this point we would also talk about 2001. But I, I would have to say that this has been a very uh, fruitful and, and uh, heartfelt uh, inaugural podcast, and, and it's probably time to segue to the last word. And, Mike, because it is our first podcast, I have to segue to you and what I know will be the last word. Just glad to be back. Uh, you know, it's been a while since we all got together, and uh seems like we all had some pent-up frustration. So uh, now that we've gotten that out of our system, you know, let's go Mets. Well, let's go Mets, but Joan Payson, of course, right? Absolutely. Uh, you know, we mentioned it. Uh, she's the patriarch of this organization. If it wasn't for her, there would be New York Mets. Uh, uh, a, a titan. A titan. She was a minority owner of the New York Giants and was only one of two owners to vote against the move to San Francisco. And her, in collaboration with Branch Rickey, threatened the establishment with the creation of a new league, the Continental League. And, and, and she beat the establishment at their own game. That's a mammoth achievement, considering the ancient good old boys network. A mammoth achievement. And by her good graces, she gave us the New York Mets. High time she gets honored for that. And for her fortitude. And for her insistence. Uh, again, against other baseball titans. And she fought them and she won because they backed down and the American League and the National League today are still having to honor that agreement to expand that incorporates what the Continental League would have become. That's Joan Payson. Because perhaps without her, Branch Rickey couldn't have gotten it done without her. But together, come on. It's high time the Wilpons put, erect, and dedicate a, a, a well-thought-out uh, monument in her honor. Like I say, without... Mrs. Joan Payson, there would be no, no New York Metropolitan Baseball Club that they inevitably purchased from her estate, i.e. Mr. Wilpon. Here, here. Here, here. Here, here. Um, well, just because you invoked, you got to believe and gave uh, passing mention to 2001, not, not to uh, keep us here uh another 2001 minutes but it's funny that uh, we, we we got down to 
uh, late August of 2001, and the Mets were as buried as they had been in 1973, and then they put on a, a phenomenal finish. It's one of those years that uh, looks different from the perspective of the end that it did for, for most of the season. 73 was like that. 2016 was like that. And 2001, although obviously colored by a larger tragedy that, that you know, really overshadows everything about that year, Mets and otherwise, uh, that group gave us a real, uh, a real fight to the finish type of uh, run, 25 and 6 at one point. Uh, I just wanted, since you brought them up, I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, I, I will leave you with a number uh, that uh, from from the great Lost podcast that, uh, for whatever reason, we, we never got on the air uh, a few months ago uh, well, under the rising Apple auspices. Uh, I was talking at the time about ranking the Mets seasons, and we had a little discussion mm-hmm. about that. And I was trying to figure out where 2017 uh, landed while it was still in progress. And I wrote something at the end of the year on Faith and Fear and Flushing, uh, doing exactly that, ranking the seasons, trying to take into account that some are better than we remember, some aren't as good as we remember. There were good times, there were bad times. And the number I came up with for 2017 out of 56 seasons was 42. So we just went through the hmm. 42nd best or perhaps the 15th worst season in Mets history. Uh, so <laughs> while while there is, um, ju- just for, for, for context, the number 43 was 2002, uh, and number 41 was 1974. So uh, make of that what you will. Um, I'd like to say there's nowhere to go but up in 2018, but as we see, there are actually a whole bunch of spots and a total abyss <laughs> to go through in 2018 if they're not careful, but I'm optimistic. Yeah, well, just again, I'm not going to go through the whole 56 of them. We don't have time nor the fortitude, <laughs> but uh, I ended up ranking 1993 as number 55, just ahead of last place, 1979, mm. and <laughs> I got 1992, which we talked about at length, number 44. Uh, just off the pace set by 2017. And that was giving it a little bit of credit for the fact they were actually over 500 uh, into uh, into mid-May, about six games over, and they actually were sort of in contention into August. And I, I think that just goes to, to uh, demonstrate how one's perceptions are colored by experience, that if you lived through a year like 1979 when there were, A, no expectations, and B, nothing among those non-expectations exceeded, how grateful you still are that if at some point in the course of the season, beyond the first week of the Mets are in something resembling first place or contention, you know, you, you kind of should take take that and uh, cherish it for a week uh, before the whole thing falls apart, if it does. But uh, anyway, 2017 uh, wound up being uh, kind of a dud. And but now we have a brand new podcast, and again, I want to congratulate you guys for launching it. I'm very happy to have been a part of uh, what I imagine will be the longest episode in its history. <laughs> but I, I, I've also I've also learned never 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 to doubt uh, our collective stamina 
So um, thank you very much for the opportunity. Uh, congratulations on launching it. And, Sam, you keep plugging it. I'm very uh, – I had no idea, honestly, when when you were filming me in the Bergino Clubhouse uh, more than four years ago that uh, this thing – I knew it would become something. I didn't realize uh, what a large part of, I apparently play in it. So I appreciate that, and I look forward to seeing the finished product. And uh, anyway, good talking to you guys once more. Well, Greg, thank uh-huh. you very much, and to keep shamelessly plugging that, uh, yeah, it, you provide so much history of not only yourself, but also of the Mets and how intertwined they are. And there was nothing that couldn't be made between the Chapman's recollections and your recollections, as well as their tour of their uh, house. I was about to say apartment, but that was the New Yorker in me. Uh, their house that is filled with uh, with plenty of, of Mets history and, and uh, plenty of Mets stuff. I normally go on. I normally will continue very, very long. But what I will go down as my last word with uh, this first inaugural podcast for us in 2018 is that Back to the Future I have always intertwined with 1986, whether it be Game 6 of 1986 or whether it be the first movie of the Back to the Future, which takes place in 1985, uh, whether or how many ever times you see either of them, you can never believe that Marty gets to the lightning in time, whether that be actual Marty in Back to the Future or whether that be uh, the Mets in 1986. And it's unbelievable in Game 6. And when I, I think of 2018, my hashtag for 2018 is a line in the Back to the Future Part 2, which takes place in 1989, not too good of a season for the Mets. But still, in that movie that takes place in 1985, uh, Marty McFly says to Doc Brown, who are going back to the first movie, which is a pretty crazy part of the sequel, they, he says to him, but what if we don't succeed? And Doc Brown says to him, we must succeed. And that is my hashtag for 2018. Whether it be your life, whether it be my life, whether it be the 2018 New York Mets, that is my mantra for 2018. And with that, we come to the conclusion of the first podcast of a Metsian podcast. Greg, as always, thank you very much. Thank you. And Mike, thank you. Thank you, brother. And as always, the only way to end it is let's go Mets. Take care, everybody. Let's go Mets.